This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. And uh, happy days. Happy days for pretty much everybody. Everybody on Earth. Never been happier. Right. Because it's cereal day. Today's the day it's okay to just get, grab a bowl of cereal and, and eat up. You don't even need to make a meal today. Cereal will be your meal. Just eat it right out of the box. It'll be so good. Uh, got a lot to talk about today. We'll be getting into the fact that uh, Americans are being a lot less charitable today. We're not giving what we used to give, so we'll bring on an expert to help us understand why, what's happened to our charitable donations. Do you think angst and cynicism has anything to do with that? Maybe. Maybe mm. fear of like, man, i got to start saving. This place, is, this place may not be you know, what it used to be. There's been some sort of corruption type of fields to some charities at times where maybe they misused funds and so well and the economy that tanked that too. so then everybody got into a bad habit of just not giving but we need you know we need people to give charities are in trouble so we'll be talking to Jonathan Meir about that from Texas A and M and uh, we got a lot to cover um, we'll also get into the fact that uh, television now they're they're actually in the television shows. They're bringing in more and more. Um, what's it called? Uh, real life political humor. Political candidates. Yeah. Donald Trump. Even Betsy DeVos. These people are now making uh, Mike Pence. Poor Mike Pence. They're making the they're making the primetime television now, and in not in like news, but instead in. I think one of the greatest shows ever, Last Man on Earth. Have you ever seen it? I have seen a lot of okay. it. I love it. Uh, a lot of hair. I don't like what he does to his pool. Let's be real. Which time? At the very beginning of the movie or the show. Yeah. Well, That's right. There's a kiddie pool and then there's also the regular uh, the pool. The kiddie pool too. I don't like. Yeah. I mean. There's lots of pool like yeah. scenes where he's doing. Well, if you, had, if you had anything in the world and you could have everything you wanted and you just drive around and get it, then I guess that's what you end up doing. Well, there is a problem with no running water because yeah. the society has collapsed. So he's yeah. just trying to make do with just what try- he has. <laughs> and he had a pool. so And a diving board. <laughs> um, we'll get to all that fun. It's pretty interesting stuff coming up there. We've also got, of course, some other empty news to share with you, plus uh, the headlines. So let's get straight to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country we need to be worrying about? On Monday, House Republicans unveiled the American Health Care Act. There are long awaited bill to replace, repeal and replace major tenants of the Affordable Care Act. So instead of the ACA, it'll be the HACA. Okay. Which may cause Another some letter. confusion. So yeah. yeah. The proposal calls for freezing enrollment in the ACA's expanded medical program on January 1st, 2020, and move forward, capping federal funding for Medicaid until the end of 2019. States would be able to sign individuals up for expanded Medicaid. The proposal includes refundable tax credits based on age and capped at a specific income threshold for people who want to purchase health insurance and repeals most taxes that were used to fund Obamacare and the penalty for individual and employer mandates to buy insurance. House committees want to start voting on the 123-page legislation on Wednesday. 
The plan is expected to cover fewer than 20 million insured under the ACA. So estimates right now show that it's going to insure less people. The House wants to vote on it quickly because the, according to what I could find online on the legislative calendars, they have a recess coming up April 11th. Ooh. And when the moderate Republicans go home, they'll hear from their constituents why yeah. this isn't a good idea and they may change their vote and they want to get this all taken care of before anyone. So fewer people will be served by this because yeah. they're not mandating that you have to have it. They're taking away the individual that mandate. fewer people will qualify. Okay. At least that's the initial reading. This came out yesterday, and people are trying to consume it as fast as possible and talk about it. Sure. On Monday, President Trump issued a revised version of his executive order that temporarily restricts travel to the U.S. from a handful of majority Muslim countries. One of the major differences between Monday's order and the one blocked by a federal court six weeks ago is that Iraq has now been removed from the list of nations that face travel restrictions. In an interview Monday morning, Kellyanne Conway explained that Iraq has quote, better screening and reporting than the other six nations on the list. Okay. Yeah, well, because, yeah, we probably put that in there. Yeah. Um, the Homeland, Homeland Security Department is considering separating children from parents caught crossing the Mexican border illegally, Secretary John Kelly said on Monday. Uh, Kelly said such a move would be part of a broader effort to discourage families from making the dangerous trek across Mexico to the U.S. border. He confirmed that he is considering the action during an interview on CNN. The plan had previously been reported by several news outlets. It was, I would do almost anything to deter the people from Central America getting on this very dangerous network going through Mexico. Uh, He said the children will be well cared for by the government, though. Huh. Seems kind of like a big job. He says they have lots of experience in this, so they'll take care of the kids. Yeah, yeah. Um, and finally, a five-year-old has become the youngest person ever to qualify for the Scripps National Spelling Bee after winning the 2017 Scripps Green County Regional Spelling Bee in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Saturday. Good Morning America reporting on this one. Edith Fuller, who was homeschooled and has barely been on the earth for about 1,800 days. Boy. She uh, correctly spelled uh, Janana, J-N-A-N-A, a Hindu term for knowledge. Five-year-old, five-year-old knowledge. In order to win the competition before uh, her, the youngest was at least six. Competitors can be as old as 15. Her parents say learning the words was educational for her. She was able to learn about different countries, cultures, different kinds of food. More than 280 spellers will compete in the national contest in May. What? Which is covered on ESPN. What were you doing at five? I probably had my G.I. Joes, and I was really happy. I was just sitting there. I was daydreaming in kindergarten. That's what I was doing. I remember because my mom told me. She told you you daydreamed? Yeah, I didn't. I had to do my homework. The one piece of paper I had to do mm-hmm. in kindergarten, every day I had to bring it home because I'd sit in class and stare out the window. Man. Or at my girlfriend. You had a girlfriend? Oh, yeah. Uh, you want to know crazy little truth? When my wife and I got married, somebody brought her preschool class picture and we found out that we were in the same preschool. What? Mm-hmm. We used to hang out by the green machine. The green a, machine. The green machine was a really cool, like, big wheel. You stood in front oh, yeah. of it and yeah, – yeah. It was amazing. You stood in front of it. There would be, like, a, a background that it. somebody could insert later on with their computer. No, no, no. This was – we would we – would, there was one green machine and, like, wagons and all these other little, you know – my big, Toys. my big wheel was a Chips Patrol big wheel. Oh, I love Chips. And I had a Knight Rider big wheel, I think. I thought I, I, w- I, thought I honestly thought I was Poncherello. Was yeah. that his name? Yeah. Frank Poncherello. Frank Poncherello. I thought I was Ponch forever. Yeah. 
And then my mom told me, no, I'm Matt, Matt Townsend. And you're like, oh. I probably wouldn't go see the new Chips movie, though. No, stay uh, away. It's very rated R. Yeah. It's very R. Not the TV show. Boy, why would they ruin such a good thing? While we're speaking of movies, I just have to bring up Bill Paxton. Remember, he died. Um, Bill Paxton was on Titanic. He, what was it? Uh, Terminator. Twister, was it, uh, it Twister, Twister. True Lies. But why I'm bringing it up, because the cause of his death was a stroke after heart surgery, which is pretty common. But stroke is tends to be a, a potential problem in any surgery. But people more and more today are just going to have surgeries done all the time. Like, I'm just going to go have a little tuck here, a little lift here. Be careful. Surgeries have consequences. Stroke is one of them. Well, this sounds like it was a necessary he surgery. He had to have his for sure. But everybody else, I mean, surgery is a big deal. Go. We've had people on the show that talk about the number one uh, or the top rated or the top caused deaths tend to be caused by surgery. And more infections are there as well. So don't just think it's just surgery. I mean, it's, every time you go have surgery, it should be really – you should pause and think. Bill Paxton sadly had to have his surgery. So, um, How scary would it be too to be one of those patients that is conscious when the surgery is being performed? Oh, yeah. You're not – yeah. yeah don't, oh, don't even go there. That's horrible. That's horrible. My son happens to be uh, in Missouri where they had tornadoes. Yes. And like 20, right? lived where a major tornado did the most damage last night. But he doesn't live there anymore. Yeah. So our prayers and best wishes go out to those in all of the storms that, uh, that beat up America last night. Um, okay. We talk about a lot of people, not we don't, but a lot of people are talking about the fact that, you know, something's going to happen. Eventually, Trump's going to be impeached. They're all throwing that out there. Uh, Maybe Trump will quit down the road and just hand it to Pence. But we already know, according to um, a really popular television show, what's going to happen to Mike Pence. So this is a flashback in the series. There's a character played by Kristen Wiig, who's this really wealthy woman who uh, is wondering why everybody's getting so sick and she is just absolutely positive that nothing could happen to the president. And the president at this time is President Mike Pence. And so here's what she has to say and the, uh, the aftermath. You mean to tell me the president of the United States doesn't have a vaccine? Yeah, right. And there's the presidential hearse as they head towards Arlington Cemetery. Michael Richard Pence, 46th President of the United States, dead at the age of 61. President Paul Davis Ryan Jr. President Rex Wayne Tillerson. President Steven Turner Mnuchin. President Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions. President Betsy DeVos, dead at the age of 61. Ooh, that is a lot of presidents. Yeah. So the show The Last Man Standing, I guess there's some epidemic, some they infection. We don't this, know. This is the most they've ever said about why there is no people anywhere in the country or uh, I assume yeah. on the planet. So the country sits dormant and now we know Mike Pence apparently will eventually be president according to Last Man Standing. And the virus just works its way through the line through of succession. The, Rex Tillerson. <laughs> the confusing part about the show is they're – they're wandering around. The people on the show, there are no, like, bodies anywhere. I know. Well, yeah. Right? 
Now, they showed a, a one spot, I guess, where they had like a, a triage center or something. But like you would think people were just dropping where they stood. Yeah. Right? But there's no one anywhere. It's well, just like everyone just walked away from their lives. There's cars parked in the streets and it's great. It sounds like they buried them all. I don't know. They're either in buried or they buried all the presidents. I'm sure a lot of them are dead in their homes. Yeah. Well, I didn't I didn't see it going this way. Like Cher. They they walked into Cher's house and she was in her bed, you know, dead, but Yeah. They went, Oh look, she looks so great. How weird is that? That you you're you're this popular person. The next thing you know, you're going to die on a show. I mean, it's a comedy, really. So I guess that's funny. But I'm going to miss President DeVos. And Sessions. President Sessions. <laughs> President, what's his name? Jeff Beauregard Sessions. Wow. Yeah. That's sad. Just works your way right through it. But they don't mention what happens to Trump. Well, yeah. But somehow, Mike Pence, Mike Pence, 46th president. This does take place in the future, obviously. Well, yeah, but how much of the future? Oh, uh, at least. I mean, are they give us a timeline? At least four years. Yeah, at least four years. Okay. I want to say it was 2020-something. Because at that point, it'd be eight years. Maybe Pence ran after maybe being he vice ran. president. Right. He maybe ran he for ran. president and won, and then, yeah. you know, the disease hit. But if Tragic. you learn anything from this show, it's... Get a bunker. Get a bunker. And have a companion to share it with. Yeah, that was the big battle of Last Man Standing is do, you, do you multiply and replenish the earth again? That's a Bruce Willis movie, by the way. Really? Last Man Standing. Is it? This is Last Man on Earth. Oh, this is the Last Man on Earth. Is Last Man Standing – no, what's the uh, uh, What's the name of the the main character in Last Man on Earth? Uh, it's he's portrayed by the actor um, Will Forte, and the name of the character is Phil Miller. But then later on in the show, he comes across another Phil Miller. And what are so the they, odds? They insist that the original Phil Miller be called by his middle name, which is Tandy. So there's two Phil Millers. When the Earth is depleted of humanity, there's there's still two Phil Millers left. So the more good-looking and uh, more tolerable one, talented. Yes, they call him Phil Miller, and Will Forte they call Tandy. Because nobody likes him. It's just sad. It's just sad. Don't you think? Can't even keep your own name. Last man standing. So um, what <laughs> – we've got, we've got a lot of, uh, of things to cover today, but we, we do probably need to pay tribute to Serial Day. It is the day, um, of course, where brand nuggets – you know. Who invented the brand nugget, for crying out loud? Dr. James Caleb invented the brand nugget to help the patrons of his sanitarium. A sanitarium was a place where people would go to recover from illness or injury or to partake of restorative spa treatments. Dr. John Kellogg took an interest in health foods for his patients. He created granola and with his brothers helped created many of the meatless breakfast foods. They even came across the method uh, that let wheat flake... Instead of being a nugget and a cornflake were born, it wasn't until eight, uh, 1939 that the cereal would take on the sweetness that we are now familiar with today. The sweet creations was called Ranger Joe Popped Wheat Honey. Ooh. And was marketed towards children. You had me at Ranger Joe. Ranger Joe Popped Wheat Honey. Honey spelled H-O-N-N-I-E. 
Oh yeah, that makes sense. Honey, so is there a type of cereal that you just can't have one bowl of? You have to have at least two bowls of. No. Are you I'm, serious? I'm not. I'm, I'm getting to an age and a stage in my life when I don't just love cereal anymore. It's just. Well, I just don't love it. You know how you wake up and you just have the desire to obliterate your gums yeah. and the roof of your mouth? Yeah. Let me just suggest Captain Crunch. Captain Shredder, we not, call it. Not Captain Crunch, but Captain. Captain Crunch. Captain Crunch. If you need to shred the roof of your mouth. Great choice. Also, uh, you know, a handful of gravel. If you need to uh, completely obliterate your taste buds because there's so much sugar. Yeah. Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Oh, yeah. I like Frosted Flakes, but it's I, I always feel my heart racing at the end of that. If you want to satisfy your desire to eat something that is soggy the second the milk touches it. Yeah. Fruity Pebbles. Really? Uh yeah, don't eat those. Um, if you want to reminisce and have a reconnection to grandma, because this is what my grandma used to serve me, Raisin Bran. If you're pregnant and you're having a craving for styrofoam, mm-hmm. pops. Oh, pops. were Those were good days. I got to have my pops. Yeah. Oh, you can. I'll give you, I'll let you have your pops. Cereal day, folks. You can go home tonight. You don't even need to make dinner. Just, you know rip through the a box that you have to rip nowadays it, it doesn't it's hard to get into a box of cereal today somehow open that bag on the inside and pour yourself a bowl of cereal and if you've got them ranger joe popped wheat honeys a show favorite we'll be back folks when we come back we're talking about why americans are less charitable than they used to be stick with us this is the matt townsend show Compared to 10 years ago, Americans are uh, donating less money to charities overall, and the Great Recession was probably the leading cause of this phenomena. But charitable giving has not increased since the economy's picked up a bit. Are Americans being stingier with their money? Here to speak with us today is Jonathan Meir, an associate professor of economics at Texas A&M, who is also the Private Enterprise Research Center professor and the director of undergraduate programs there. Uh, Jonathan Meir, thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So are we being stingier with our money than we used to be? Uh, So that's a a tricky question. Overall giving has actually recovered and, and increased a bit. My data go through 2014, uh, so they don't go all the way all the way to present day. Uh, but the, the pattern of results that, that I found uh, in a project joint with two undergraduate students in, in our uh, research program, David Miller and Elisa Wolfsburg, was that giving plummeted during the Great Recession, unsurprisingly. Uh, But what was somewhat surprising to us was that the drop didn't seem to be driven by reductions in people's income. There seemed to be, I don't know if you'd call it something in the air, uh, but there there was maybe an air of uncertainty that led people to to claw back some of their giving. Mm. And uh, at least through the end of, of the span of time that our data covers, that really hadn't come back. The air, so th- this air of uncertainty, it's still kind of looming, it sounds like. 
Uh, yeah, I think that would be that would be a fair assessment. I don't want to draw uh, too strong of a conclusion from that because it's it's just speculation on my part. But the the thing that I can tell you for sure is that the drop in income uh, or wealth it by itself doesn't explain most of the drop in overall giving. Hmm. Now, um, but I guess so. What I'm hearing too, though, is overall giving is I guess it's coming back up. It's is it just who's doing the giving? That may be part of it. The data set that we have uh, is called the Panel Study of Income Dynamics. It's an amazing data set, uh, but it certainly doesn't cover foundation giving or corporate giving. Uh, and being a survey, it, it unsurprisingly undersamples some of uh, perhaps the wealthiest people whose giving may have come back uh, may have come back earlier. Hmm. How, do, how do you see? Uh, American citizens and their giving as opposed to other, the, you know, donations from other countries and charitable giving in other countries? Uh, so Americans are an incredibly generous people. Giving in the U.S. tends to be much, much higher than giving in other countries. And it's actually um, the cause of a lot of speculation as, as to why that is. Um, some might say there's, there's um, culture and uh, traditions in the United States that just haven't existed in other countries. I think that's certainly part of it. Uh, we also have um, more inducements to give in the tax code as compared to other countries. But even people who don't itemize their taxes and, and don't uh, take advantage of those, of those indirect subsidies are still really generous. Um, there's also uh, some, some thinking that government spending crowds out uh, charitable giving. So, uh, you know, if you, if a person as, as a citizen feels as if the government is taking care of, say, the hungry, um, then they themselves don't have to make a donation and mm. they um, pull back some of their donation. And likely it's, it's, a, it's a mix of all of those causes. But the upshot is uh, Americans give far, far more on average than, uh, than people in other countries. How much do we give on average? Um, so we give about about two percent of of GDP, which sounds like a small uh, amount until you realize that it's about three hundred and thirty billion dollars a year. Wow! Um, yeah, it's it's quite a bit of money. Um, now a good chunk of that comes from corporations and foundations, um, but you you can see a, a gradient of generosity all the way through the income distribution from very low income people all the way through the very wealthy. Is it? Um, do, do these do these I guess go more to religions? Uh, are the donations given to to who? Who are the charities? I mean, or is it just every charity we can imagine? Uh, so it does. It covers an incredibly broad uh, broad scope. Religious religious giving in the United States is is quite high. Um, it's it's again. It's also hard to distinguish between giving to a religious cause um, that we might think of as as a purely religious cause. For example, building a new building um, for one's own one's own um, church versus giving to religious causes that are themselves social spending, like a church's food pantry. Uh, and, and getting that fine a gradation in the data is, is quite difficult. Um, but it is, it is a good mix of, uh, of giving. It does vary across the income distribution, so um, lower-income people tend to direct more of their giving towards religious causes. Higher-income people tend to direct a larger proportion of their giving towards um, education and health charities, while still um, giving a fair amount on average to religious causes. In the, in the article you wrote in The Atlantic, you talked about 61% of households reported giving to charities in 2000 with an average gift of about $2,600. Um, is that, is, so is that, you're saying that number hasn't fully recovered? 
Um, so that number, so that number is, it might be a little misleading because it's, it's a, it's a mean. So, uh, it's an average. So it's, uh, skewed by some very large givers in there. Um, but it's, it's true from our data. What we find is that, um, the average household giving, uh, has not really recovered at least, at least through about, about, um, uh, 2012 or so hasn't really recovered, uh, to its pre-recession, to its pre-recession peak. Wow. And I mean, it kind of makes sense. I mean, I guess you have like the Gates Foundation, where all of a sudden the Gates might give billions of dollars. But uh, the average family, we're still struggling, I guess. And and you, you, I guess, cannot attribute or know what to attribute that to, I guess, directly. Yeah, so it's it is it's it's very tricky to what uh, I would have thought that um, income and wealth being um, two of the main drivers of of people's capacity to give um, that the shock the negative shock to income and wealth in the Great Recession was going to explain a lot of the drop in giving and it certainly explains some of it um, but at an individual household basis it really doesn't explain nearly as much as as I expected going into that research project in your study do you sense that um I mean, because people, I guess, could also donate, uh, you know, other goods. They could donate time. How do you account for those donations as well? Uh, that's a really great question. So um, the the way the question is is, is phrased is it's asking about donations um, of of money and of in kind goods. Um, unfortunately, they don't ask as much about volunteering in this survey as I would like them to. I've actually, in other research, studied the relationship between donations of of money and donations of time, volunteering. Um, so I don't know that we actually have any very good, um, reliable estimates of how volunteering has changed over the last decade or so. It's yeah, it'd be interesting to see what's really happening to us as a country. Um, one of the things I know in my church, in the in the LDS church, we we donate a tithe, a ten percent, but we also donate a lot of time. Do you notice a difference in? the demographics behind uh, giving? Does religious affiliation impact it? Or what does impact who who is giving? So it, it varies dramatically, of course. Um, religious affiliation does uh, does play a role, and it, of course, plays a large role in um, in where one directs their giving. Uh, it, it'd be kind of unusual for someone who isn't affiliated with religious organization to donate most of hmm. their money uh, in, in that direction. Um, there, there certainly are uh, <clears throat> there certainly are some patterns um, that one sees. I, I would say most of them are related to um, how secure one feels and how tied one feels to their uh, to to their community mm. um, or to the organizations, religious and secular, uh, to 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 which one is 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 giving. In some of my other research, uh, I've looked at alumni donations using data from a um, private uh, research university that we very creatively called Anonymous University. Uh, and the um, uh, the sort of the, the highest correlates of giving, the things that were most predictive of giving, though not necessarily um, causing giving, were how tied you felt to the majority social culture. So were you a member of a social club? Were you a varsity athlete? All the sorts of things that you would imagine would lead you to form a, a strong connection with your alma mater. Um, that's not to say that if we took people who were not varsity athletes and force them to be on a team, they they too would feel 
more generous towards towards that institution. Uh, it's just that people give to to causes with which they feel a connection. Hmm. No, you, and you see that with all of these alumni groups calling you or contacting you. Hey, give a donation to to your alumni group, and I'm thinking I don't even know you anymore. I haven't been there for years, and I had a really bad experience when I was there. Um, it's interesting. You're you've got to feel somehow tied into the social culture in order to to connect to that. Um, let's do this. Let's, we're speaking with uh, Professor Jonathan Meir. He's an associate professor of economics at Texas A&M, and we're, we are uh, walking through some of his research on Americans and their charitable giving. Interesting numbers and interesting insight in be, uh, behind the number. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion, find out about millennials. Uh, millennials are very known for being altruistic and and into many causes are they are they giving of uh, of their charitable donations as well we'll get into that plus corporate as well stick with us folks this is the Matt Townsend show helping you be the good in the world Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are speaking with Professor Jonathan Meir. He's an associate professor of economics at Texas A&M. And we're discussing some of his research that he's been doing on charitable donations and charitable giving over about, I guess, the last, what, 10, 15 years or so. Uh, Jonathan Meir, thank you again for being with us. Again, it's great to be here. This is um, this is some pretty interesting insights that we're gathering about charitable giving so it, in, in a way, overall, the numbers are kind of rebounding. Who's giving? Um, the, the, the average family, the average citizen, those numbers aren't quite back to where uh, they were in, uh, in the year 2000. Is that right? Um, just after 2000. So if you, if you recall, 2000, 2001 was a recession also. Right. Oh, that's right. 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 So when we look at this, um, what, other, what other interesting insights have you seen in charitable giving I guess demographically, or or what what might it be telling us about the future? So one thing that I think is is very interesting. One move that I I think is very interesting and and particularly appealing to me as an economist is um, this notion of effective altruism. Um, this effective altruism movement, which is focused on. Um, trying to be more rigorous about the impact of one's giving. Uh, so, <clears throat> so being more concerned with what charities are actually using their money for and how effective are they uh, with, with that money. Now, this is important to distinguish um, from this, this obsession, I'd, I'd call it, with overhead costs and administrative yeah. costs, uh, which I've, on which I've written also, uh, which, again, if, um, if you're cutting your office staff to the bone, it's very difficult to be effective. If you don't have a good IT person, you know, it's very difficult to get out in the field and, and, and do things. And yet we, we've had this, um, I, I'll call it an obsession again, with, with trying to keep uh, overhead costs uh, low. But effective altruism focuses more on what is the impact of of your programs, and in particular, the effective altruism movement focuses on um, kind of the immediate impact on lives saved and improved. Hmm. Is it because yeah, there was the big issue of only ten percent of the money I donate even gets goes directly to the end user of the charity. Um, but you're saying effective altruism is is 
is more important than the percentage. It's it's what's the actual end user's impact? How much is impacting the the actual beneficiary of the charity? That's right. And and I would say, you know, if only 10% of the money is being spent on on program activities and the other 90% is is being spent on private jets and parties, then <laughs> that is that is certainly cause for concern. But but saying that one charity is better than another because one of them has a 85% uh, spending ratio and the other has a 75% spending ratio um, is, I, I would say, a, a crude and misleading way uh, to pick to pick a charity. Hmm. What do you see just in your research about all of these now charities? You you can charities can actually get a percentage of the proceeds on Amazon, or they're they're finding more and more creative ways to just take a percentage here or take a percentage there. Um, are you seeing charities getting more creative in their fundraising? Absolutely, and and I'd like to think that uh, the the economics research over the past ten or fifteen years has played some role in that uh, in in the science of of philanthropy and charitable fundraising. Um, but you know, it's in my best interest to take credit for it. Uh, so you know, you know the the idea of being able to reduce the frictions for people giving. Um, some of my some of my work shows that even very small. Um, uh, interferences or difficulties in making a donation can have a really big effect. You can imagine you're trying to make a donation to a charity and uh, the web page keeps refreshing and you give up after 30 seconds and you never end up making that um, go, yeah. donation. So anything that can be done to, to make it easier to, to donate, we saw that after the Haitian earthquake where people were able to text the Red Cross um, $10.00. Uh, in a very in a very sort of easy manner, I think finding w- creative ways, as as you say, to reduce those frictions, whether it's through Amazon or or clicking through on Facebook or so on, uh, I think is a very fruitful avenue for charities to to better raise funds. Well, yeah, and I wonder if 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 I if I do you know if I check the box and I want my whatever on Amazon to go to a charity. I might feel like I'm giving to a charity, but I might not actually be giving, be getting credit for giving to that charity. Um, well, it's, I guess it depends on how you how you're defining credit. Um, if you're defining it for the purposes of the Internal Revenue Service, uh, then that that may that right. may very well be true. Or for your study, it. even. I'm sorry. Or even for a study. Oh, for a study, yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, uh, it's true. It may not. It may not show up. Uh, it may not show up as standard giving in uh, um, in in the sort of research that I do. Uh, I, I'd be interested in knowing more uh, how you process mentally process that donation. Do you feel like um, you've discharged your obligation, or yeah. you know, do you, do you obli- feel yeah. like you've you've done you've done some good by uh, by checking a box? Well, and you know what's really interesting too is because, for example, uh, if we are cleaning out our closets and we take our clothes uh, to uh, Goodwill or a local version of Goodwill here in Utah, which is called uh, Deseret Industries. When I drop it off, they always ask, do you want a receipt for that? And interestingly, I'm like, nah, no, I'll just take really the benefit of giving instead of trying to go t- show the IRS I did it. I wonder how many people are willing to just give and do so anonymously, and it seems like the most healthy way to give. Um, yes, yeah, certainly. I think uh, um, 
every religious tradition or nearly every religious tradition pushes anonymous giving as being more meaningful. Um, this is related to a concept um, called warm glow, which, which is a term coined by, uh, by the great economist Jim Andrioni about, about 30 years ago. Uh, and that, that's the idea that, that people give because it makes them feel good about themselves. Um, which is, of course, you can still feel good about yourself when giving anonymously, but some of those prestige uh, and, and kind of signaling to others that you're, that you're a generous person, those motivations are stripped out mm. uh, in anonymous giving. And so um, to the extent that that's uh, viewed as a more meaningful uh, donation, you know, um, uh, it very well may be driving some of that. Yeah, absolutely. We had um, Professor Sam, Samuel Bowles on, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, about moral giving. And one of the things that he talked about is sometimes the inducements themselves may uh, make it so we're no longer just giving altruistically. We're giving, uh, we're giving to get the inducement. And do you think that that impacts our giving? So I, I think that the, the question of how inducements affect giving, is a, it's a very fruitful area of research right now. There's, there's been some great work done um, on intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So if, if you're coming in to donate because um, you feel that it's important, it makes you feel good about yourself, and I say, great, now here's your prize for giving, I may actually be stripping out some of your, some of your intrinsic desire. You now feel um, like I've almost cheapened. Uh, at an extreme, I've almost cheapened your your altruism, and so maybe you're less likely uh, to donate. So people have um, have have looked into that question, and and there is some evidence to suggest that perhaps these extrinsic uh, gifts, these external gifts, may reduce people's uh, people's desire to give. Um, but overall, I'd, I'd characterize the literature on that question as mixed, hmm. and I I think it, it probably depends heavily on on the context. Uh, on the context of of giving and and uh, um, you know what kind of charity it is and what what type of gift it is are you a regular donor are you a first time donor and so on what what do you think about these new goFundMe accounts um, you know somebody in the in the neighborhood goes in needs liver surgery or a liver transplant and the next thing they know that you have a goFundMe account and it enables me to give to the family to help them handle their costs. Uh, are those being seen as charitable donations as well? How are those viewed? And because um, it seems like those are off the chart. Uh, they, they sure are. You know, they're so new that I'm not sure anyone's really drilled into them that much. I've done some work with DonorsChoose.org, uh, which connects uh, <clears throat> school teachers with donors hmm. to, to, fund, to fund projects in their classrooms. It's, and it's a great, great organization. Um, some of my other work is focused on, on this notion of directed giving, that people do seem to want to be able to pick the recipients of, of their... Of their um, their philanthropy, which things like GoFundMe and Donors Choose and some of these other crowdfunding platforms allow you to do, um, I, I think that in you know in some ways it's great again for the reason that it, it reduces it reduces frictions. You know, if you if you um, have someone that you feel as as being worthy of 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 your your altruism, um, this makes it very easy for you to donate to them. Mm. Um, on the other hand, you know, sometimes we do see. Uh, GoFundMe's for kind of um, uh, we can call them silly reasons, or or even just uh, it's not that they're undeserving; it's that um, you know their story went viral, 
and they may not be the most needy people out right. there. And that, that gets us back, of course, to this notion of effective altruism um, is, is the best uh, recipient of your, of your donation, someone who uh, lives in a wealthy country, and at the end of the day, their, their lives are, are not that tough compared to perhaps someone in sub-Saharan Africa or in Southeast Asia um, yeah. who is more anonymous uh, to you because their story doesn't go viral um, and it and also has a much more difficult time um, getting funding from from individuals like you. This is – I mean it's a, it's a completely different world where, you know, 50 years ago I'd take a casserole and I would go talk to the grieving widow um, – you know, of a tragic accident. Now I might not even leave a note. I might just go put some money on a GoFundMe account or a DonorsChoose.org account or whatever. And I wonder if it if it distances us from the end user so much so that we don't derive the benefit of charity. Uh, perhaps you know, but on the flip side, it, it, you can now donate to someone who lives across the state or across the world in a way that you would have never been able to um, to bring a casserole to them. Yeah, that's right, uh, and probably you would have you would have never never really known about them. So I actually think it'd be really interesting to know whether at a very close range, when you're talking about neighbors, um, people in your town, people in your church, um, whether whether that relationship has been altered or whether we've really expanded the size of the pie, and now people who are further away have a very easy way in which they can, in which they can make a donation and help out. Yeah. Do, do you sense, I mean, what's the impact of social media having on all of this? It's, it certainly spreads, uh, spreads the word uh, quite a bit more. It, it, again, reduces that friction um, because you can click through um, one of my colleagues in, in the Department of Economics here, uh, Reagan Petrie, has done really great work looking at the impact of social networks and um, the idea that it's, it's now much easier for, with, with one click, I can reach, you know, hundreds of people uh, with, a, with a post and, and um, even provide some social pressure mm. on them and say, you know, hey, you're, you're, we, we are friends, and I'm making air quotes here because we're talking about Facebook friends, um, but I, I can put some pressure on you. Um, and at a very large scale for a very low cost in a manner that I wouldn't have been able to do even 15 years ago. Yeah. Spreading the word is easier now. The frictions of giving, it's, you know, you can set up a GoFundMe and just, you know, click here to give. Um, and I think those, those things have become much easier, much easier to do. Do you, do you see anywhere in the research or the data, do you see any group, and I don't want to, you know, cast aspersions, that just, that aren't, doing what they used to do, that just aren't picking it up like they used to? Um, so I think that there's, there's general trends. I don't know that there's any particular um, group that's, that really stands out to me. Um, you know, it's, it's, and it's always, it's hard to separate, um, it's hard to separate short and medium-term shocks yeah. from broader trends. So in some of my other work, I've looked at, at habit formation and giving. And so one concern is um, if, if you came of age during the Great Recession, time of uncertainty and lower income, reduced job prospects, charitable giving was probably not very high on your mind. Uh, and so 
it, it may be that, that that particular generation may may be less likely to form a habit of giving. Um, and, and, you know, 30 years from now, we'll see, hey, this generation seems to, seems to be less generous. But I don't want to extrapolate from just a couple of years of data um, and say, you know, well, cl- clearly, um, you know, shake my fist, kids these days, uh, <laughs> you know, don't, don't, don't do their part. Do you sense that the millennials, because uh, they're, they're, they're known, I guess, by research, I guess, to be more altruistic, do you, do you see it, uh, uh, you know, reaching donations as well, charitable donations? Uh, so I do think that it's, it's, like I said, it's certainly easier for that, for that generation to, to use technology to make donations, to use technology to... Um, uh, to find out more about about things, and a lot of the effective altruism movement is driven by by young people in that generation who are saying, you know, I don't just want to cut a check to the same old charity. I don't really know what it's doing. I don't know how effective it is. I want to think very carefully about where my funds are going and what's what's the greatest good um, that my dollar can do. And I think that's there's there's a lot of value to that. Um, you know, at the same at the same time, um, there is perhaps some concern about about the moral licensing that uh, that that hashtag slacktivism can give you. That you know, if you repost uh, some article and say, you know, doesn't this make you mad? Um, mentally, in your mental accounting, you may feel like you've done your good deed for the day, mm. uh, and and you don't feel obligated to uh, to make uh, to make a donation. But again, I, I don't know. I'm sure I'm sure it's out there. I'm just I'm just ignorant of it. Any systematic research that's really looked into into these particular questions. Yeah, no, good stuff. Jonathan, we appreciate you. I really want to have you back to talk about this uh, forming of habits to, uh, in, in charitable donations and giving. I think that's a pretty powerful thing. And slacktivism. i got to learn more about that. Uh, how to avoid slacktivism. I guess that's just the, the easing of all of us into that, you know, like frogs into a boiling pot. You don't drop them in. You just slowly turn up the water. Then we just slack into it. We'll take a break, my friends, and uh, continue the learning to become the best people we can become on this great earth. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Give it up now for the House of Bouse. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to her name is McKenna Baus. No, now it's a good song, McKenna. You got the greatest song in the world. You know, only the best for the best. McKenna Baus uh, is what we call the mind bender. She tries to bring us issues, questions, and anything she can to get us thinking. And today, McKenna, no different. What are we talking about today? So we're talking about whether or not you should go and tell people when you're sick. And like sick, like I have a cold. I tell everybody when I when I have a cold. I think a lot but of us do. You're talking like a bigger sickness. A bigger sickness. You, you know, can't stop talking about it. Something <laughs> that is going to th- you know have you going into surgery or maybe is a ah. little more long term, a little more serious. Because you don't want to you don't want to play the sickly person. Yeah. And if it's if it's a chronic issue, you don't want to have to have everyone constantly you know. Are you okay? Bringing it, yeah. I'll oh, see. I think I would rather just walk away and die. And a lot of people of your generation um, and earlier tend to be 
um, you know, like-minded in the sense that they tend to be a little more private about the kind of illnesses and health stuff that they're going through, whereas people in my generation do tend to be slightly more open about it. Right. Um, And so we're sort of looking at the pros and cons of each approach. And That's cool. So what what do you see? What do you find? I mean, I I don't want the attention that way. I don't want the attention. But then, you know, yeah. people want to help. So, you know, there is a little less privacy that you're going to get by telling people. And sometimes when you are going through a sensitive health issue, you really value that privacy. But there's actually a lot of reasons um, that really say you probably should be telling at least more people than you do. Yeah. And so some of the reasons um, with that is the fact that it can simply save your life. Whether it comes down to, you know, you need some kind of transplant, the more people you tell, the True. better. Because it totally. makes it that much more likely you're going to find a match. That's right. Or somebody knows somebody who had a similar illness and went through a treatment and you hear about mm-hmm. something that you weren't going to hear about e- otherwise. Yeah, right. And that makes a huge difference. Well, and support, right? Family support. Exactly. Financial support. Sometimes that helps. Yeah, with like the GoFundMes that right. we were talking about earlier. Um, that exactly is a big part there. And so there's definitely a lot of reasons to talk about it. Um, one of the things, though, that they do recommend is doing so, you know, judiciously. Um, you know, po- you, maybe you're going to post some stuff on social media, but maybe post less than you initially think you should. Just like ha- make sure it's out there, but yeah. don't give too much information. Another important thing is to set up what they call sort of a surrogate, somebody who is the gatekeeper on what gets posted online because it can be really overwhelming to have people coming and asking you all the time, how are you doing? Right. Um, and you having to do the updates. So you have somebody who posts for you. They, you have given them strict guidelines saying this is what you can post about. Mm-hmm. This is what you can't. And you direct the questions where they need to go. You could do a blog, mm-hmm. you know, something that keeps everybody informed. What? So overall, you feel it's, it's a good idea. Share it's, what you can. It is better. Um, and it can oftentimes also give um, people who are ill a little bit uh, more control, a feeling yeah. of control, and make yeah. them feel like less of a victim. And too, and just, I mean, I guess the idea that everybody is eventually going to fall ill sometime. So having a good mentor or a model that's been through it might help us all as well. Exactly. McKenna Baus, Baus in the house. The house She's of the mind Baus. bender. The house of, the house of Baus. Great music, by the way, put together by Jeff Simpson. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. It's the house of Baus. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the show, folks. The Matt Townsend Show, where we do what we can to help you get the information you need to lead your life to a healthier, happier place. Happy days for you today. Uh, We got a great show coming up. So much to talk about. We'll be talking about ways you can stop rerunning embarrassing moments. You ever just had an embarrassing moment? You just keep replaying in your head over and over and over. Well, we'll uh, we've got a great guest coming up. Jesse Shepard will be joining us, a counselor that will walk us through some some ideas, some techniques, things we can do to 
quit ruminating over the negative stuff. So pretty much every day of junior high school. Yeah. It's pretty much overcoming junior high school one-on-one. We'll be talking about that. Also, of course, today we're celebrating cereal because it is cereal day. The day you, you know. Mm. I used to do a lot of consulting with, uh, with General Mills. Oh, I didn't. Yeah, yeah he so, he has uh, he had a, did a tour in Iraq. Uh, different as um, a different general. Yeah. Oh, okay. This is uh, the cereal manufacturer, the food manufacturer. They own Yo Play, for example. You know, General Mills. But uh, interesting. You know, cereal's big business. Big business. Mostly among college kids. Yeah. I'm not the guy that just loves to eat cereal. Are you, Terry? Can you just do you ever have cereal as a meal? No. I don't think we have cereal in my house. Not a cereal guy. No. That's probably the last thing I would choose to have for dinner. Really? But so if I, can't, I can't eat it any time of the, the day. If the wife and your, the girls were out of the house, you wouldn't just be okay having a bowl of cereal. Nope. You'd make a meal. I'd yeah, make so a meal. Yeah. My son-in-law would just eat cereal. He really – and he loves it. I mean it's like – and it, it brings him happiness. That's cool. O's? You like O's? No. Honey bunches of oats? I like that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I don't, but no O's. I think it's just I'm aging. I don't know what it is. Cheery O's? I like uh, honey O's. Honey O's. So they're called honey cheer honey nut Cheerios. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Exciting radio right there. Hey, uh, got a lot to cover um, as well. We, we're going to be talking about uh, a brawl that started over, you won't believe it, bagels if on it was, a train in the United Kingdom. If it was Kingdom. bacon, I could understand that. Sure, sure. But uh, uh, we've got some interesting insight on that story. All of that ahead. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country we need to be worrying about? House Republicans on Monday introduced their bill to repeal the Affordable Care Act, individual mandate, the crux of President Obama's signature health care law, and replace it. The legislation would offer individual tax credits to purchase health insurance and would reportedly keep the ACA's protection for those with pre-existing conditions, but would allow insurers to raise premiums for those who allow their coverage to lapse. Additionally, the legislation would provide a set amount of federal Medicaid money each year for states, a move experts have warned would kick many people off Medicaid. Uh, Representative Jason Chaffetz was on CNN this morning and had this to say about the new bill. But access for lower-income Americans doesn't equal coverage. Well, we're getting rid of the individual mandate. We're getting rid of those things that people said that they don't want. And you know what? Americans have choices, and they've got to make a choice. And so maybe rather than getting that new iPhone that they just love and they want to go spend hundreds of dollars on that, maybe they should invest it in their own health care. They've got to make those decisions themselves. More access, but possibly less coverage. That might be the byproduct. Well, yes. Yes. I think that's fair. But we're just now consuming this. So there you go. Just now consuming it. Now getting into this 123, but... Well, it's, it's, it's much more complicated than anybody thought of. 
Yeah, allegedly. At least that's what the president says. Shortly after the said President Trump signed his new immigration executive order Monday, the American Civil Liberties Union uh, predicted he'd face continued disapproval from both the courts and the people. Trump's new order no longer excludes Iraq, exempts lawful permanent residents and current visa holders, and nixes the previous order's indefinite ban on Syrian refugees. However, it still temporarily bans people from six uh, predominantly Muslim countries from entering the U.S. The ACLU argues Trump's latest order is simply a scale-back version that shares the same fatal flaw as the original order. The only way to actually fix the Muslim ban is to not have a Muslim ban. So we'll see where the courts go with that. Today, WikiLeaks started leaking the first part of its Vault 7 series. The leaks contain U.S. Central Intelligence Agency documents re- uh, regarding the program codenamed Vault 7. It is the largest publication of confidential documents on the agency, in the agency's history. The documents refer to Year Zero, which introduces the scope and direction of the CIA's global covert hacking program, its malware arsenal, and dozens of zero-day weaponized exploits against a wide range of U.S. and European company products, including Apple's iPhone, Google's Android, and Microsoft Windows, even Samsung TVs, which are turned on and made into covert microphones. The first full part of the series, Year Zero, comprises 8,761 documents and files from an isolated high-security network in, in the CIE Center for Cyber Intelligence at Langley, Virginia. Woo! They had a... Someone compromised their security and got all that stuff out of it. So uh, it's the tools they use to hack stuff. Is stuff way to, hacks. Way to, to, so they'll turn your phone on and listen to you. Finally, don't you hate it when you're just trying to, to play some baseball, but a mariachi band is just constantly following you all over, all over camp, all over every move you make, there's a mariachi band. Wouldn't you hate that, Matt? Oh, yes. Sounds like my days in Anaheim, California. Seattle Mariners outfielder uh, Lanus Martin can relate the Cuban native turned 29 on Monday in Peoria, Arizona, where his team is currently in the throes of spring training and is often a tradition for Cuban birthday celebrations. Martin's teammates paid to have a mariachi band follow him all around spring training. <laughs> uh, during warm-ups, the band was there in the batting cages. Oh, that's There's hilarious. The band. He was in center field during a practice game against the backfield. They're right there playing Oh, that's great. In other news, the New York Knicks played a first quarter of a game over the week, over the weekend against Golden State. No music, no sound effects. Yeah, I hear it was like distracting. It was to the very players, distracting. Apparently. And and also just it wasn't it was hard. It's hard it was hard to watch without all of the other distractions. Because if you if you watch a game or attend a game, they're playing music constantly. Well, and the mascots running out, yep. and they're throwing balls around. I mean, there it's it's constant distraction. You make a basket. There's a little kaching or some little noise they play, and there was just nothing. And they said it was to to embrace the purity of the game. Well, that's it. But I wonder how many people in the room are purists that really want. I don't know. That embrace. But you, you got to hear the squeaking of the sneakers yeah. and players complaining about playing time because they're not getting in the game. It's great. <laughs> That's interesting. I bet you could hear them more, couldn't yeah. you? Mm-hmm. So what would your soundtrack be, Matt, if you were an athlete and you wanted to work out or play to a certain song? Wow. What would it be? A lot of ifs there. Well, that sounds obvious. I mean, it's obvious if you know me, right? Something with Nickelback? No. Mm-hmm. Barbara Streisand. Wind Beneath My... No, that's Bette Midler. Yeah. Barbara Streisand, uh, Barry Manilow. Oh, Mandy. Oh, Mandy. Neil Diamond, America. Sweet Caroline. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Terry. That's what I work out to every morning. Mm. What would your soundtrack be? Oh, it would be too... It'd be dark. It would be 
rock and roll. I mean, not even rock. It's like hard. It's acid rock. It's usually just a lot of Linkin Park because they're just kind of mad. Is acid rock a thing? I don't know. I just made it probably, up. Probably. Probably. Mm. It's harder than hard rock. It's acidic. There's a sub, sub, sub genre of rock. Mm. Dark should acid ask the rock. Through the garage door guys. Oh, yeah. I mm. don't think they're going to have much knowledge with that. They might. Just, just a feeling I have inside. They no, just, they might. They might. They just don't go there. Yeah. What would you work out to? Um, you know, it would probably. Show tunes? How movie, did you movie, know? Movie theme yeah, songs? How did you know? <laughs> Soundtracks or movies? Because you've got that, you've got that spring in your step. The hmm. La La Land soundtrack. Oh yeah, man, you guys know me too well. Right read you like a book, Jeffrey. We read you like a book. Hey, uh, we got to get to the story about um, a brawl over bagels hmm. in the UK. Police were called to break up a fight on a train in eastern England as rowdy passengers repeatedly placed bagels on other travelers' heads. Yeah, it's a bad move. They were bagel capping people. Officers arrived at the station on uh, Sunday after being alerted that passengers were fighting and intimidating others. A video on Twitter showed bagels on top of two passengers' heads. Female passengers appear to uh, be in the footage placing partial and whole bagels on the heads of a man that they that sat in front of them. He is then seen to take chunks off of his head before throwing them out of the carriage window and later shouting. A group can be heard singing, he's got a bagel on his head, which is actually a number one hit in England. Mm. Uh, the video also shows uh, brawls in the carriage and outside on the platform. It's not known if these were connected to the bagels. Uh, using the hashtag Bagelgate, British Transport Police, BTP, tweeted, let's be clear, no bagel should be treated so cruelly and no one subjected to intimidating behavior. That's bagel bullying. From the BTP. Yeah. And the uh, B- British News Network, British BCC. What, hey, what kind of bagels does it say? BBC. Uh, they didn't say. They didn't say what kind. Because if it was like an Asiago bagel, oh, or, I, or like I put an, that on my head every day. Maybe even an everything bagel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. but then it's you know. But with 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 schmear. Yeah, either way, but if it was like a raisin. I think, oh, I know, love me a raisin though. Yeah, not, raisin not, bagel. Not a big fan. So uh, here's the deal. On the surface, the action of these groups of and these women, you know, it seems random. It seems extreme. However, this shouldn't surprise anyone familiar with the famous rock group Knives and Petunias whose biggest hit chronicles this once ubiquitous pastime. Petunias. Sweet bread of mine? Sweet bread of mine. It sounds very similar to Sweet Child of Mine by not, Guns and Roses. I'm not familiar with that yeah. or Guns and Roses. But uh, Knives and Petunias. Sweet bread of mine. It's, they were huge at one point. Well, they were, and that was one of my favorite bagel sh- songs, you know. The Cinnamon Raisin? Uh huh. Fresh as the Bright Blue Sky. Mm hmm. 
That guy's got some pipes. Seriously. That's what comes from eating a lot of bagels. I would kill to get a guy like that on the show. Mm. You can't afford him. Probably can't. Knives and Petunias, that's the, that's the leading hit uh, in the UK, if you're interested. So basically, these women were acting out the lyrics from this song. Yeah, bagely, yeah. He's got a bagel on his head. Yeah. Bagely. Bagely. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Hey, um, speaking of music, while we're on the subject, cops, um, you won't believe this. This happened in Florida. A Florida man actually posed as the drummer for Nickelback in a bid to swindle a company out of $25,000 worth of high-end microphones, according to the police. Investigators allege that Lee Kennig, 45, masqueraded as Nickelback drummer Daniel Adair when recently playing an email or placing an email order with uh, Lewitt Audio, a Vienna, Austria firm. The order was subsequently flagged by a Nickelback business representative as out of the ordinary, according to police reports. When the rep contacted Adair, the drummer stated that he did not make an order and began to look into who had. Cops executed a search warrant at Kennig's Florida home, during which he acknowledged writing the email to the Austrian firm. Other statements made uh, by Kennig were redacted from a report released by police. When a cop asked Kennig who is nicknamed Wookie, and other groups he may have defrauded, the suspect invoked his rights to have a lawyer present. He's a Wookiee. Seems guilty. He's a guilty Wookiee. By the way, the worst kind of Wookiee you can have. It seemed like a lot of work to impersonate a drummer. And of course, who did he impersonate? Nickelback. Nickelback. Yeah. Which, for some reason, you guys always laugh at, but their music, second only to Knives and Petunias, mm. my favorite. Maybe well, he should have defrauded Knives and Petunias. They can afford it. Yeah, they're loaded. They got the bread. No one in here will criticize your taste. Uh, is it outside of here you'll criticize it? Absolutely. Okay. Step out that door, <laughs> free game. No one inside this studio will criticize it, but outside, the, they're all criticizing it. Well, okay. So you got to be careful, folks. People will impersonate you. That ain't pretty, folks. That's why we bring you these stories. It's the information you need to know. Even if you didn't need to know it, you now know it. And uh, it did probably create another need in you. You know, now you got to unknow it, which uh, leads us to our next guest. Jesse Shepard will be in in a minute. We're going to be talking about ways to stop rerunning embarrassing moments or scripts. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Why is it that when somebody asks us to describe our most embarrassing moment, we begin to sort through our brains and to find that moment? And you know what? It, it isn't maybe even embarrassing anymore, but it's still pretty funny. What is it about being embarrassed that makes our faces heat up, our hearts pump faster? To help us through this, Jesse Shepard is back with us this morning to talk more about embarrassment and how we can move on from those moments that we try not to talk about. In fact, the moments we try to forget. Jesse, uh, welcome to the show, my friend, Jesse Shepard. Thank you for having me. And Jesse owns um, a, a therapy group, um, mm-hmm. Blue Clover. 
Yes, blue clover. I was gonna therapy. say blue diamond. That's, <laughs> that's my skiing too, days. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one too. Blue clover therapy here in in Utah. Now, Jesse, talk to us because everybody. I mean, life means you're going to embarrass. You're Absolutely. going to be embarrassed, right? Absolutely. Well, and the big thing is that we um, get embarrassed and then we think about it. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh! Especially right before you go to bed when you should be going to sleep. <laughs> we have that rumination. Yeah, going your over head and starts over. spinning. Yeah, and and so really, I mean, we're looking to modify our behaviors. Is usually why we get these shame, guilt, embarrassment uh, emotions. Uh, but what happens is we sit there and ruminate on it, and we never move forward from it. Yeah. Yeah. And the reality is. Most people aren't thinking about like you go to bed thinking about it, but mm-hmm. no one else is. Oh, we are much harsher on ourselves than right. other people are, are on yeah. us. Yeah. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. <laughs> That's what I, I believe. In the end, everyone's kind of self-centered, right? So these embarrassing moments are embarrassing to us because we're so myopically focused on us. Yes. No one else cares about you. No, for the most part, people you, maybe a couple of days they'll remember it, but they move forward yeah. much quicker than we do. But and it'll be a joke. And then, um, I mean, I did things in high school for skits that I to this day remember vividly every part of it. Oh no! <laughs> but I, I was just giving a speech, and the person introducing me was somebody that his name was Adam, and I played Eve uh-huh. in his uh, to help him run for a class office. By the way, he won. Nice, because I was working. It, it was you. Yeah. But in the end, I was humiliated. He didn't hardly remember any details about it. Yes, exactly. And you remember it vividly, every right? Every part of it. Every part <laughs> of it. So how do we stop the ruminating? How do we stop the negative thinking, the shame that we might have? Well, first things first. So Dr. Linehan came up with this interesting way where we write out the event. And we write it out in as much detail as we possibly can. And the idea behind this is that as we're writing, we slow down the, pro- the thinking process. And that way we are able to kind of mull over the details and our brain can finish the sequence. So what happens with rumination is that we like, – like let's say you're at a starting line and we go one, two. Yeah. And then we, but we never finish that process. And so by writing it down, we finish that process and finish the loop so we can move forward from so, it. So part of this looping is that we just we haven't brought it to a culmination. We haven't ended it. No, it's, it, it just sits there and spins because we can't finish it. We didn't we never finished the race. Hmm. We just we, we sit there and we think about the details. We weren't able to complete the task. And then all of that emotion rushes into that and we just can't move over rationally. So give us an example of an embarrassing situation where we ruminate on it, we didn't finish it, but then by writing it down would help us. And how would we write it out? Okay, so let's say okay, for instance, I had a TV segment. Um, and the thumbnail that they used, my face <laughs> was not one that yeah. I would have chosen. Thumbnail choices Mm-mm. are never good. No. And um, I actually had Bell's palsy when I was a kid, so I could not move the right side of my face. And that is what that thumbnail looked like. Uh, and it brought up, it rushed all of that stuff yeah, up. Yeah. And it's very emotional. And so um, I started at the beginning. I started when we figured out that I had Bell's palsy about the teasing that happened, all of that, all the way up to this, you know, me as an adult with mm-hmm. this thumbnail and having comments on, you know, social media is sometimes not very kind. And um, all of these things and, and what I was feeling, all the emotions. And you want to highlight that. You want to you want to highlight the irrational piece, like what actually happened, and then the emotional components of that. Hmm. And then as you go through that, I mean, it was like six pages. It was yeah. a little silly. But I, I, by the time I got to the end of it, I was like, well, you know, 
this is not the worst thing. This is, you know, I'm an adult now. Right. You know, I have children, you know, that I have to worry about. And this is not the most important piece. And so it just, you can run through that. And Do you write that down? That Do you write down your insights that now I see that this is not as big of a deal? Or do you just process through that, think through that? Well, the the main component of it is writing down the events. But you want to get to the end and and have some insight into how important is it right now? How is it going to affect me? Hmm. Because, you know, three days later, no one was talking about it. Yeah, no one. Yeah. No and one's nobody, like, no one cares your thumbnail on that thing looks horrible. It was silly. Yeah. You know? Nobody cares at that point. Mm-hmm. By that time, somebody else has done silly. Something and silly. So. Do, do you then write out, so you would write out how you handled it, how you're going to handle it, and how no one in the future will even care about it. Exactly. And, and you know, I cannot control the thumbnails. Yeah. You know, that right. come up. So that's just the way it is. And I actually, it, it's a nice thing to maybe burn it or rip it up. Yeah. Um, just to be like, okay, I'm going to wash my hands of this. There's mm-hmm. no no reason I need to continue to mold this over. So you, you could then print the document and if you need to, you could burn it. Yes. Shred it. I had a lady take out her gun and shoot the crud out of it. Oh, yeah. Seems a little violent, but I love it. it worked really well. I love it. it worked really well. You could well. tie it to a balloon, even uh-huh. just re- that Let releasing it go. process. It, it's it's a symbolic thing, but it kind of it takes away that burden. Yeah, and that's what we're looking for. Do some people are some people more prone to to get stuck on embarrassment than others? Um, you know, people who people who tend to think. A lot about their behaviors do tend to get, hold on to those. So introspective moments. people, yes, will spend a lot more time mulling over their actions. People who are kind of driven and, and goal oriented and are kind of like, oh, well, I have to get on to my next task. Yeah, don't tend to mull those things over as much. I don't know which is better or worse um, necessarily because the ones who are thinking a lot about their behaviors can modify their behaviors yeah. and really set good goals and know themselves really well. Whereas those who are just always moving forward sometimes are not paying attention to the moment. So. Um, but yes, if you spend more time thinking about your behaviors in general, you're more likely to have that rumination of embarrassment. But I guess too, the brain wants to hang on to these embarrassing moments. They want the brain wants you to not let this happen again because this is yes. socially devastating. Yes, yeah, and well, and that's really where that comes from. We want to fit into the social structure, and so we pay attention to what others are doing. And if we see a behavior that's not quite right, we note that in our brain and go, "Okay, I don't want to do that." Hmm. So the second that we do something like that, whether it's in our control or not, um, it takes us out of our, you know, feeling like we're into the social structure that we belong. And so by, you know, having those things happen, we, we really are hard on ourselves because we're like, oh, now we don't fit in. In all actuality, everybody gets embarrassed. Everybody does silly kind of dumb things. Yeah. Once in a while. And it's because I, it's always weird for me. I just did a segment on this on a show, a television show that we, we kind of want to get rid of our thoughts, but it almost – it takes energy to have a thought and to keep a thought. It also takes energy to get rid of the thought, which is why you're asking us to write it down. Yes. The, exertion of, the exertion of energy helps us get the idea out, but it also exhausts the energy around the thought. Exactly. And, and it – again, it closes that loop. It closes it. It makes it so there's a finality to – that mm-hmm. that moment that does, we had does the does the moment the closure of the thought have to be real or can it be imagined what do you mean by like, that like could i take an embarrassing moment and fictitiously turn it into something else fictitiously um, turn it into something else like it didn't nobody laughed but in fact they just thought i was the funniest guy in the world yeah i mean if you know 
Okay, so it's however you can pitch it to yourself. Whatever you myself will buy. Exactly. Because you might have done something and I, I tend to go like, well, you know, other people have do, done this. And now if somebody else has that happen to them, they can look back at me and go, oh, my goodness, it's yeah. happened to somebody yeah. else. Too. At least, yeah. Yeah. So whatever way you can kind of convince yourself and, and make you feel better about it is wonderful. Yeah. Is it um, – I guess I sit there and I see – I mean embarrassment – it does. It seems like it goes back to – for all of us, back to our childhood, back to these moments where we – you know, the light was – the spotlight was was shined on us and we were in a place where we didn't want to be. Yeah, middle school. Does – how much of that – how much of the childhood – I mean because it seems like we probably have left a lot of stories untied. Yes. And unfinished. And so when we're little, we tend to be egocentric completely. We yeah. don't notice those things. We're just going through life and – Loving it, right? But then as we realize that we want to belong, that we want to be part of the social structure, um, that is when we really start to find those embarrassing moments. And for instance, I mean like sixth grade, middle school mm. is a very awkward time. We don't know who we are. We don't we – don't, um, there's, there's not a lot of identity that we've, we've grasped onto. And so we're just trying to fit in. We just want to belong. And so as we're doing things that are kind of awkward because everybody has those awkward moments, we go, oh, man, that will not be accepted. And um, so, yes, we hang on to those things. And that's why it's important to write these things down. If, if you are triggered by something, like when you're going to college and you recall something in middle school that makes you feel really awkward or mm. uncomfortable, go ahead and write that down. There's nothing wrong with that. Even if it's you know so many years in the past and you think, well, that shouldn't affect me, those things do affect us. And so closing those loops is very important. And you can go back, I guess. There's no expiration date. If you're still thinking about it, as a devastatingly embarrassing moment, mm -hmm. then you can probably go create closure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's it, – it, that's the thing. We, we look at events and we go, well, not, nobody would be embarrassed about that anymore. I should not be embarrassed. Yeah. It absolutely does not matter what the event is. It's your perspective and what, you're, what emotions you're hanging on to. Powerful. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Jessie Shepard. She is uh, – she owns Blue, Cl Blue Clover Therapy. And if you go to BlueCloverTherapy.com, you can find out more information about her work there. We'll come back, continue this discussion about why we shouldn't be afraid of our embarrassing moments. In fact, maybe there's a way to, to, to utilize them to our advantage, right? To, to help them, utilize them to help us learn, to grow, to become the best people we can become. Stick with us. More with Jesse when we come back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little uh, embarrassment beating you up. You just can't let go of that thing you did at the party. Oh, boy. You'll never get over it. Well, joining us is Jesse Shepard. Jesse is, has a master's degree in mental health counseling and uh, is the owner of Blue Clover Therapy in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today, she's walking us through how to get through our embarrassing moments, how to move on from those. So far, she's taught us, uh, A, they're important. Don't, I mean, just recognize. But also, um, you can, one thing you need to do is finish the story about the embarrassing moment. Mm -hmm. uh, like, write an ending to it so, you know, we know how it closed out. Yes. Yeah, you want to be able to, to complete that 
that, that structure and get all the details out, all the emotion. So what do we what can I do, I guess, as a parent to help um, my kids when they come to me with an embarrassing moment? My tendency is like, oh, it's not a big deal. Relax, breathe, move on. Well, and when we do that as parents, because that's our natural yeah. reaction, be like, ah, it's not a big deal, right? Um, that devalues their experience. Yeah. It takes away from the, I mean, because those emotions are completely Huge. real. Right. You know, and it can be absolutely humiliating. And you, and more than likely, were not there as a parent. So you don't know what happened or how other people, you know, reacted to the right. embarrassing moment. And so the big thing with that is not to devalue the emotions, but to first off, help them process through. So have them tell you it in, in all the details. Give me the details. And mm-hmm. you want to, you want as much of the story as you can get out of them. Yes. All of the, what they felt. That's a big one that kids tend to leave out where it's like, okay, well, I was walking down the hallway and I spilled water on my lap and it looked like I peed my pants. Yeah. And like, it's like the, the mechanism behind right. it. Right. There's the detail. There's yeah. the detail. But I want to know the emotion component of it was the girl that you like you know standing right in her there. locker and saw yeah. did, you know did your you know did your face flush you know did you shake what were you thinking you know what were what was going on um you want all of that yeah and by telling the story by by divulging all of these terrible things to you um they are creating camaraderie with you and together you guys are, are a team and you're creating that social structure that they are safe in. Hmm. So you have your you know, day-to-day going to school type social structure, but you also have your inner family. And so if they can come home and feel comfortable to be like, this is what happened and it was terrible, yeah. then it really makes it where they belong someplace. So no matter how embarrassing everything was out in the world, they can come home to their safe spot and have that conversation with you and feel safe and comfortable. And it does comfort and remove some of that embarrassment. Well, and because we, we as parents might feel uneasy about their lack of ease. Yes. Right. So we – we're like, we want them to get over it. Like, it's fine. You're fine. Just, yeah. it's good. Move on. Yeah. It's okay. very uncomfortable for parents to see whether they're being bullied, whether they experience something yeah. embarrassing. Um, any type of distress at all is very difficult for us. And oftentimes we do not have control over that. We can't be on the playground with them. We can't go to school with them. And so to have them have to experience that without us to kind of walk them through it uh-huh. is so uncomfortable for us. And so that's why we want them to feel like they can come and talk with us and and feel safe. And um, that way you can give them tools so when they go out in the world, they can feel okay about it. Amazingly, what that really is, that's the therapeutic side of this, right? So the benefit of a therapist is that they're an informed listener Mm -hmm. that knows how to kind of prompt us through our stories. And that's what creates, it sounds like, a lot of the therapy but as a parent, to some degree, we could be therapeutic as well by allowing our kids to tell the whole story, share the emotion of it, and safely receive it. Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing with a therapist or a parent. Really, the the other person is doing all the work. Yeah. We are just there to help guide them and to help them process through it rationally and emotionally. Yeah. And then get skills so that when if it when and if it happens again, they are able to cope. Well, like it also seems valuable because the child in that moment, because of their embarrassment, they don't necessarily pick up all of the data. Mm -hmm. Like they don't notice how many people didn't look. Yes. And see that or think. (laughs) And they only saw the two that did. Yeah. And then they, it sounds like they probably embellish it and make it bigger than it is. Mm -hmm. But like, so would it also be valuable to find out, like have them tell you other data? So then what did you do? Like Mm -hmm. then, well, I went to my next class. 
And well, what happened in the next class? Yeah. Well, I just covered it with my backpack and then I sat down and then it just dried during class. Yeah. And then, you know, was it mentioned throughout yeah. the rest Did of the day? Did anyone mention no, it? No, no. no. And, and I'm also bringing up, well, has that ever happened to anybody that you know, like any friends yeah. or anything? And then s- having them see that from that person's Another perspective. Another perspective, yeah. Yeah, because then like, oh, well, no, it wasn't a big deal. you know. And they're like, oh, well, I bet it wasn't a big deal for you either. Right. So, you know, that's okay. So even if you're pro- letting them process it, but you're gathering as much data as you can, I guess their brain will more naturally start. You don't even need to tell them it's not a big deal. No. You just let them process through and then their brain will say, yes, yeah, okay. Yeah. This isn't as big of a deal as I was thinking. Well, and, and that's the thing. Like if we tell our clients or if we tell our kids something, they will not believe us. That, that's motivation theory, isn't it? Yeah, if, exactly. if it's coming from me, you're not going to believe it. But if you find the idea yourself. Yes. You're, so you just want to slowly nudge them in the right direction. Yeah. And then they find their way on their own. That's so cool. But you, you also can't be condescending or cross-examining. Oh, well, isn't it true that only two people in the hallway saw you? <laughs> no, yes, because Your Honor. <laughs> it takes away from that emotion. Yeah. We can't devalue them Let them tell the story. Yeah. It's their perspective. Nobody else's. Yeah. So during the class, were you thinking about your pants drying the whole time? And what did you finally feel when you noticed they were dry? How did that change? What did you feel then? Because then the, the, people will naturally heal. Oh, absolutely. It's just we've got to give them a space. Yes. And, That's and then it, huh? giving them skills so that when they have to go to school tomorrow and yeah. go walk down that same hallway right. that they you know, can, okay, I'm going to take deep breaths when I walk through. Totally. I'm not going to make eye contact because I'm scared. I'm yeah. going to see my girlfriend or you know that kind of thing. So. But I guess is that the problem then like with an embarrassing moment versus other moments is we, we, try, to, we try to keep it secretive. Yes. So that then begets shame and – yeah, we you know, it's not healthy. No, we don't want to hide it at all. And and that's the thing. Have you ever met someone who cannot be embarrassed? Oh yeah. 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 And usually they're the ones to point out what they've done and to oh, make yeah. fun of what they're doing. You know? And so it if you just like say it, then people are like, "Oh my gosh." Like, yeah. that's hilarious. You yeah. know, I can't believe that happened to you. And then they move on. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because I pretend to be that guy and then I tell embarrassing stories, mm-hmm. which I feel okay telling because they're mine. But then when someone comes up and calls me by the same name that I was calling myself, I'm like, yeah, you don't have the right to call me that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. hey, you were, you know, you this is me. That. I can say that. Well, it's the same thing with that thumbnail. Like, I, I can joke about it, but right. it took a second for me to, yeah. <laughs> to be like, okay, it's okay. Yeah. What's wrong with your face in that thumbnail? That's so rude for you. Yeah. That is so devastating, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Talk to us. Another tool you, you've got is visualization. How can we visualize ourselves out of the embarrassing paradigm? So when we get embarrassed, we tend to get hyper aroused. We our cheeks flush. We, our heart rate goes up. We breathe heavier, right? Yeah. So um, what you want to do is you want to get into kind of a nice calming state, meditative state. Um, maybe be sitting for a little bit, doing some breathing, that kind of thing, and then you go through the event. As you went through the event from your view and you try to imagine it in as much detail as possible all the way to the end where there was a a completion of, you know, uh, where your pants dried or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, And then you start over with the event only instead of being the actor, you become the director and you are watching yourself go through this moment. Hmm. So you could see everything. You could see the environment. You could see, you know, what your face looks like, what's going on in the entire event. And by doing this, and you complete the 
the entire scene, all the way back to your pants drawing. Right. Um, and by doing this, uh, first off, we are not as harsh on our, on other people as we are on ourselves. And so you give yourself a little empathy by turning into the person who's witnessing this. And so just the same as if I witnessed somebody do something embarrassing, I really don't think about it for very long. Right. Um, I might comment on it if they're my friend or something, but really, for the most part, I, I get over it. And it takes that same concept with that event. So you go through the event, you process it, you go through the emotion, you have empathy for yourself because most of the time, embarrassing things that people do are completely normal things that we're doing. And it's so it strips away that emotion and you're able to look at it. You're still going to remember the event, but then it is seen as somebody else going through that and you have compassion for yourself. Hmm. Yeah. Which is hard to do. No, but that's healing. That's healing. Exactly. And I I remember doing that. um, I was watching, I remember vividly, it was a college class on public speaking. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was about to do a speech on the Titanic. Oh, wow. It was really powerful. Mm-hmm. And, but I remember watching a, a young woman go before me and she started to have like break out in hives. Oh, wow. Yeah. And her mouth was dry and she – I honestly thought she was going to die. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching that thinking, does my face do that? And But as a, as a third person watching her having such compassion and seeing that hyper uh, arousal state in her going off mm-hmm. – I then rushed – no, I then was told to do my speech. So I did my speech. And after my speech, I ran right to the bathroom mm-hmm. to look in the mirror because yeah. I wanted to see if I was flushed, if I was – and I, I had this weird dawning that's like, no. But I felt what I think she was feeling. Yeah. But my body wasn't manifesting it that way. Mm-hmm. And I remember gaining confidence in that moment that I can sense what she's going through, but I don't have that. Yes. I so I I'm feeling what everyone else feels that terror but it doesn't manifest in me that way. Yeah. And it gave me just that little bit of self-awareness gave me confidence that I can handle this. Yeah, exactly. And it, I mean even the the woman who had broken the hives, yeah. we all you would have empathy for her totally. cuz we have been there. Totally. We have sat and yeah. had to do a speech in front of yeah. you know a group of people and we're like, "Oh my goodness." Mm-hmm. We all have that that um, those emotions and so we can empathize with that. Um, but by you realizing that, "Oh, I can get through this without getting hives uh-huh. and all of that, that builds um, self-confidence. And that's really what we need to work on. Um, like if we have a hard time Speaking in public, we mm-hmm. need to speak in public. That's right. You know, because the more you do it, the more comfortable you will feel and be like, yeah, I got this. I and you start to out. control those responses. And I, I realize that the more I have empathy for another, the more I can have empathy for myself because I, I, I get more and more versions. Absolutely. Of it. I also – the more I know myself, the more I can empathize with another. Yes. So the more that you are aware, the calmer you can be. Like – you know, radio and TV segments. Right. Before they would make me just completely break out in hives. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, maybe you were that girl. I know, maybe. <laughs> but um, now it's you know, I still you still get a little anxious. Yeah, sure. That's, I mean, what it is. But going, oh, you know, I can handle this. And then you know, if somebody else, if the next guest is hyperventilating, you're like, hey, we can do this. We can do this. We got yeah, this. Look, yeah. Deep breathing. This is what Absolutely. I. This is what I figured out for me. And you're going to do this and you're going to do fantastic. Yeah. And it's gaining that confidence in doing it. So. so when you think about it, give us the one thing. What's the one thing that we could do 
today. You've taught us to write, to finish the story. You've taught us to visualize and see it from a third-person alternative or perspective. What, what's, the, uh, what's, the, what's the one thing you think would make the biggest difference for all of us to manage the emotion today? To manage the emotion. So we want to be kind to ourselves. We want to take the time to go, okay, is this really as bad as I think it is? And really process it. Use these three tools, but really be kind to yourself. And that's really what it comes down to. It comes down to, yeah, don't beat yourself up, yeah. but be productive. Write about it, visualize it, yeah. and and then show some compassion to yourself. Exactly. Beautiful stuff. Jessie <laughs> Shepard's her name. Go check out her website, bluecloverththerapy.com, bluecloverththerapy.com. You get the latest and greatest there. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break when we come back. Caitlin Thomas will be joining us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Many of the actors and actresses that we watch on TV have been starring in movies and television shows since they were just young kids. How does this affect them? Is starting kids young the best way to help them build a future of fame? Caitlin Thomas is here to talk to us more about some famous child stars and how their careers have played out. Hello, Caitlin. Hello. What's wrong with your voice? I'm a little sick today. It's okay. We're going to get through this. So. You're like Shirley Temple with a bunch of Marlboros <laughs> with on. With a little Whoa. bit of Michael Jackson in there, too. Yeah. Oh, Bubbles, where you at? <laughs> hey, now that's rude. Ah. So child stars, I well, mean, okay. a lot of stories don't turn out pretty when they start Right. Yet. Well, I was watching you, my favorite show, The Voice. It's one of my favorites. Is that your favorite show, really? One of my favorites. Okay. And they put a 13-year-old through. So wow. It's the youngest they've ever had. That's young. It's young. And I was like, I don't know how good this is for this kid. Like, I feel like if he doesn't win, he's going to get his dreams crushed. Like, yeah. what effect could this have? But it could be Justin Bieber. Kid? But, like, look what happened to Justin Bieber when he hit, like, 17. Yeah. You Poor know? Guy. So that got me thinking, like, how effective is it to start young? Is it better to start young? Is it better to wait for your kids before you throw them into commercials? Well, and... as somebody that's old, uh, I would start younger. Like, but, like, what How? What young is young? I don't know. Like, so I, I was thinking of, like, then and now, like, child stars, Drew Barrymore. Yeah. Right? E.T. She's yeah. so cute. She was went to rehab at thirteen. Yeah, she had a hard time, a rough time, and and I mean she's great now, as far as I know. Like she seems to be doing really well and whatever. But I mean she got a couple of years there, thirteen. And that's rehab. what you that's... get when your mom takes you to bars when you're a little kid. It's yeah, just sad. that's a good point. What about Raven Simone? You know, that's yeah. so Raven. Yeah, cute little Raven. She's so cute. What's wrong with her? What's no? She's I think fine. she's okay. She's healthy. She's fine. But see, so some make it through. I wonder if a lot of this is just family influence be, that kind maybe. of incubate them. I think I would make my kids, you know, I'd, I'd try to not have them living in a trailer and having limo rides everywhere. I'd I'd make them go to school still. Yeah, Aren't there famous people uh, that are still at Harvard? Or isn't there a, a an actress that still... Goes to Harvard or Yale. I mean, yeah, I know that like Emma Watson. Emma did. Watson. She went to Brown. Yeah, I mean, I'd make him like, go to school. She still did. Um, I think of Amanda Bynes. Though. she was one of my favorites growing up as a kid. She did some really good ones, and she did pretty well, I think, through her teenage years. But then, you know, went to adulthood and started, you know, talking about accusations of, you know, 
abuse, this, that, or the other, and then she kind of had a mental breakdown, but then she went and got some. She was like lighting hair. fires on people's driveways or I don't something? Know. Yeah. But see, again, I wonder too, some of these people may have mental health issues that are not identified Until or dealt older. with when they're younger because they're stars, right? Because right. they're the money maker. So people don't tell them. I have a lot of athletes that are really well-known athletes that I work with, and they, a lot of them have never been told no in their life. Yeah, that's a problem. So then, you know, that's probably part of the problem with being a star is no one says no. And you just kind of, when you have fans, you have people that adore you all the time. Well, like, what happens when your parents are making money on you and that's sustaining the family and they're your manager? Ugh, it yeah. causes a lot of parent-child fights. Macaulay Culkin, didn't he argue with and his you parents get about money? Yeah, then you got to go for emancipation. Yeah. So, I mean, how young is too young, Dr. Matt? I kind of, I think it depends on the kid, quite really, quite honestly. I have a son that is pretty talented, but he's... And he had a lot of really good things happen to him young, but he then would come home and could care less. So he didn't get Matt, sucked into Matt it. Matt kept him humble. Well, no, I really didn't. It's just he really was, he, was at an, he, he, he wasn't going to be moved by fame. Hmm. Fame just actually induced more stress for him. <laughs> or not even fame. He's not famous, but notoriety. So I guess you have to know your kid. That's the problem. Because I think about, like, Lindsay Lohan. She was so cute. Yeah, super talented. was really talented. But so it's like this fine line between, you know, my 13-year-old's really talented at singing. Obviously, he turned three chairs on The Voice. Yeah. But is this going to expose him to a world that's more mature than him and he's too young? I don't know. And it dissipates. I have uh, friends that have been on American Idol and been in the top 13, 14 on American Idol and it gave them a big boost mm-hmm. but they're just as normal as they come so now. when I was younger my friends recognized that I didn't go around swearing and doing all these bad things so they thought it was amusing to try to get me to say some of these swear words mm-hmm. and I know that for a lot of these kids you know they get backstage and there are people that are older than older than them offering them things that they should not be consuming yeah. just because it's amusing mm-hmm. or they want them well, to feel included an, or maybe they have issues themselves it's yeah. an adult world it is it totally is hollywood that well, industry it's an adult it's adult world be just be careful maybe that's part of the rule is we got to take better care of these kids right and not there's just there's a lot that goes on backstage I, they have a lot of rules for them I'm sure, like how they can work, how much they can work, how they can't. But it almost seems like what they need is more of not just even the parents, but even counselors that help yeah, them. That would be help good, them process. Yeah. I mean, help what does fame mean the, when you're happening. when you're five or six or seven and you're famous for something? That's a big deal, right? Yeah, their that's brain's probably going to develop differently. I would imagine. Oh yeah, you're going to develop a really huge fame frontal lobe. So, I think they call it. Just really praying that Good the advice. voice does not ruin this poor kid. His name's Quiz. 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 Well, he already has like, well, a Well, I think just the name right there, you know, that pretty much he's gonna, him. He's going to be a quiz question on Jeopardy someday <laughs> in the future. <laughs> quiz question quiz. Um, no, it's great insight. Interesting insight. And by the way, just as much, just as important to the rest of us to not be sideline parents screaming at our children mm-hmm. for the, not scoring the touchdown or dance moms that are from the devil. There are some crazy dance moms that try and start their kids. Like I know. Five and six, putting them on these teams. Like, and they're not even famous. No. I mean, in the dance world, they yeah. might be. No. And go work on that voice. I mean, not that it's bad. It's just I feel bad. You feel like I feel like you're suffering. Yeah, I should probably be in bed, but I have a midterm. Can you just say, mm. Jamon? 
for us? I'm not here to entertain voice? you, Jeff. Just one, just Jam-on. one, just one. What? Jamon? That's good. As Michael Jackson would say. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. I uh, appreciate Michael Jackson visiting yeah. us today, yeah. talking about Speaking child, of child stars. stars. Well done, Caitlin. We'll take a break, friends. We'll be back. Stick with us. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Got a great hour of uh, interesting information you may need to live a healthier, happier life. So, so much to talk about. Happy Cereal Day, the day we can celebrate uh, Ranger Joe Popped Wheat Honeys, which was the first uh, sweet creation marketed directly towards children. Very crunchy cereal. Ranger Joe Popped Wheat Honeys. Uh, So today, you know, you don't even need to make dinner tonight. Just pop open a bowl of cereal. Feed the family. I've got to have my Ranger Joe's. They're great. (laughs) They're yummy. Yeah. That's the commercial. We really ought to make, not make, because who would make a commercial? We ought to have uh, Ranger Joe Popped Wheat Honeys as a a sponsor of the show. Look into that, Jeffrey. Okay. Will you? Also, um, we've got a a great show. Um, We're going to be talking about how to get your voice into your relationship. A lot of people don't dare say what they think. So you just raise your voice at that point? No, no. That's one way to do it. But a lot of times that just then gets the other person to raise theirs. What if you're louder than them, though? Right. Then we're not communicating. We're just destroying them. Just do the exact opposite don't say anything. Right. That's the other problem. Then nobody talks and then we don't know our partner. It really, in a relationship, you want to you wanna both be talking. Mm. Well, then you say, I have this friend who is having this problem with his spouse. Like you give a hypothetical right. that is really about you, but mm-hmm. you pretend like it's your friend. Yeah. See, that's another uh, Beat around the bush. passive-aggressive way to do it. You could just – Talk. It does kind of avoid the conflict unless the person can see through the passive aggressiveness. Yeah. Or, or you, you, you yeah. could talk. Or you can say, we ah. seem to be having this problem where we snore at night. Okay. And I think mm. we should stop that. So Include I, yourself so, in it. So your wife is bringing up your snoring problem. She doesn't say we, though. She says you. She says the. Yeah, she always accuses me of snoring, and then I'm half awake when she's doing this, yeah. and so I usually give her some kind of excuse like, oh, I'm just pretending, is yeah. what I said the other night. Do you know what you ought to do? Or she ought to record you. See, with the phone now, now you can just pull out the phone. She's done that. And record you. But like I can, you can do the same thing to your wife. So when my wife and we would have a baby, my wife would wake up in a startle. I have a recording terrified. of my wife snoring. Do you want to hear it? Ooh, this sounds dangerous. Do we have the rights to it? Oh, you're right. I'd have to check with her first. It's a trap. No, I, I do, just saved your marriage. In some of these situations, I guess an approach would be I statements. 
So instead of saying you, 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 you use an I statement to address the issue. Right. But what I, I know how you're going to use an I statement. How's that? You, I think you're an idiot. Yeah. Or I hate it when you. Yeah, that's, the, that's about, not a real I this? statement. How about this? I need to be better about reminding you not to snore. There you go. That's a great uh, acceptance of your responsibility. Or, you know what? I love you with all of my heart. You're amazing. And I have trouble sleeping when you're snoring on your back. You always start with a compliment. Yeah. Because it's – she does love you. She does think you're great. And she knows you need to get sleep. And she knows you don't – I know you don't mean to do this. I just have trouble when you sleep on your back and you snore. That's why I hit you with my pillow. It's not that I don't love you. I just can't sleep when you're snoring. This seems difficult. Yeah. Isn't the direct method the best way? No. Just get right to the heart of the matter. Well, yeah, it is if you are still using a loving, caring voice and you're thinking about your partner when you're doing it. See, and I think people judge tone too much. I think people (laughs) listen to what's being said and judge by the way it's presented instead of just by the words. Forget the tone. When you say people, yeah, people. You mean people in general or your wife? People that people that you sleep with that bury your children. Growing up, my mother may have had an issue with tone that may have scarred me. Well, was it a tone issue with everyone else, or is it really you just have a tone? People are like, that sounds so sarcastic. I'm like, no, don't judge the tone. (laughs) <laughs> Don't worry about the sarcasm. Don't worry about you're, – you're judging intent. Just just definition of words. No, but, well, but that's not that's – not, thank so you, you're Mr. Text, Trump. You're a text talker then. Absolutely. Yeah. But, because you can't – Can't I judge mean, tone. No. But yeah. 80% of what you say is in tone, inflection. It's in the timing. I mean, it's people, in everything people else. People read too much into that. Yes. It causes too many more problems. I think we've just solved your communication problem <laughs> is that – yeah, you just want it to be the data. You just want to use the words, right? It's just the yeah. words. Like, will you take the trash out? And I respond with, fine. And then everyone reads into that like, like it's negative. Yeah, like it's negative. Yeah. Mm. Instead of, well, what, he said he'd do What it. did you mean? When you say fine. I was just, okay, I was, I was trying to confirm to that other person that I was indeed taking the trash out. That you were indeed fine with what they were saying. I'll take the trash out. Maybe yeah. there was something okay. else going on. Like he was frustrated with something else that was happening at the same time. Like uh-huh. maybe Arrow did yeah, something absolutely. that upset him right. at the same time his wife asked well, him yeah, to take well, out the because, trash. Or which is common. Which is he common. may not be upset with taking the trash out. It's the taking it out while he's watching Arrow. We'll get to well, that. No, I can pause the show. It's no big deal. I know, but watch. But that's the, that's the very point is when you say fine, you are communicating. You're communicating a disdain in the moment. So what she'd want to then do is find out what does the tone mean. See, I don't agree with that because I think it exposes my intent too much. Yeah, your vulnerability. Yeah. yeah. So don't read into it. Just yeah. take the – I get it. Okay. I get it. Yeah. You're what we call jacked up in my business. You officially need help. It's a clinical term. It's a clinical term. Um, you need some help, but in a loving way, of course. So we'll be getting into uh, – we'll be replaying an interview we did on say what you want in your relationship, how to go about saying what you need and, and saying it, getting it out there, and how to receive when people do speak uh, directly to you. We'll get to that fun in a minute, plus uh, our good friends from BYU Sports Nation will come talk to us about what on earth happened to BYU and St. Mary's. They seem to have – how to come apart. 
We'll yeah. talk about that. Plus, uh, hero of the day, of course, and more of the empty news of today, the Matt Townsend news, the information you need to know. It's all ahead. Stick with us. But first... Terry, to the headlines. What's going on? House Republicans finally released their bill to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Several conservative lawmakers aligned with the Freedom Caucus are not impressed. The bill, dubbed the American Health Care Act, offers health care tax credits and continues Medicaid expansion for three years, among other provisions. This is Obamacare by a different form, Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio says, the former chairman of the Freedom Caucus. He says uh, they're still keeping the taxes in place and Medicaid expansion, and they're starting a new entitlement. The Freedom Caucus current chairman, Representative Mark Meadows of South Carolina, said on Fox News the biggest concern he has is if the bill will lower health care costs, and until we get that answer, we have to hold our out on judgment. House Republican leaders are bracing for conservatives and moderates to oppose the measure and can lose no more than 22 votes if they want this to pass. So we'll see what happens. Wow. In a letter sent to the Senate Judiciary Committee on Monday, Attorney General Jeff Sessions said the testimony he gave during his January confirmation hearing was correct, and he did not mislead anyone. In his letter, Sessions told the committee that because he was not asked specifically about meeting with the Russian ambassador, he was telling the truth when he said that he had no contact with anybody from Russia. Last week, Sessions recused himself from overseeing any investigations into ties between Russia and President Trump. This, of course, in response is President Trump apparently, according to reports, and a camera shooting through the window from outside the White House into the Oval Office could see Trump yeah. berating his senior staff after Sessions announced his recusal. A beat down. The State Department is set to resume its daily press briefings today or Monday, but Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is not expected to attend the press briefings. Acting Department spokesperson uh, Mark Toner told Politico that Tillerson is not expected to show up and that Toner will be holding the briefings himself for the time being. Daily briefings have long been a fixture of the U.S. Secretaries of State since John Foster Dulles. Hmm. Who? Du- oh, excuse me. Dulles. John Foster oh, Dulles from Dulles Airport. Held the role in the 50s. Yeah. But Tillerson has yet to do a televised Q&A during at least his first week. Toner's briefings will be held Monday through Thursday, with two of those sessions taking place over the phone rather than in person. Historically, State Department has held press briefings every business day. Hmm. Yeah, they, they've yet to get on that bandwagon. It's a staffing issue. They need to get that Jen Pataki back right. to the State Department. Those were fun. Those are good um, times. And finally, a small-town Iowa state senator who recently introduced a bill mandating partisan balance among professors on taxpayer-funded campuses has been busted for calling his Sizzler Steakhouse training course a business management degree. <laughs> Hold it. So the Sizzler Steakhouse Management Certificate is not a degree? No. Bummer. That's how he listed it on his resume that was on the Iowa State House website for his bio. Yeah, so he's not it's not he's not matriculated yeah. in steakery. Yeah, so it says the Republican lawmaker Mark uh, Children didn't actually earn a business management degree as it was listed uh, from utterly uncredited Forbico Management School. As he had been claiming, instead he received a certificate for successfully completing a Sizzler training course offered by Forbico, a corporate shell which once owned several Sizzler restaurants in yeah. Southern California. The bill that he is pushing through that I think ruffled some feathers, which is why people went looking for something and went, wait a second. Hold it. What's this? The bill would force Iowa's public universities to freeze hiring until the number of Republican professors on the school's faculty is within 10% of the number of Democrat professors. 
on campus. Yeah, you got to equalize. If it's a state-owned university, you should have just as many Republican as senator or as Republican as Democratic um, teachers on campus. That sounds. Why not? You know what though? Had this guy eaten probably, one of those? He couldn't find any. Had he eaten one of those nine-pound steaks? He wouldn't be getting all this flack. That's right. He'd be dead. Thirteen pounds. Good point. It's an interesting thing because everyone always complains how liberal the professors are. So the one way to fix that is – but by the way, learning is liberalism, right? Progressivism well, is – conservatism is maintaining the status quo so, thinking. Yeah. Progressivism is changing the thinking. So wouldn't that inherently define a professor? In a university. Yeah. That's what they're trying to they're do. They're always trying something. to innovate, trying right. to – Push so, the edge. So then the problem is what, what is the definition of – A liberal or conservative. Yeah. Do you have to like turn over your voting record to the yeah. state? Is uh-huh. that what they have It'd to do It would be part of check? your process. No. You would just you just show what you've declared. You have to declare something? You just show your voter, un- your voter what, ID card. What if card. you're undeclared? Then you, you have to you'd declare? You'd have to show that. Yeah, but that would be one of your percentage. So certain percentage, maybe a third and a third and a third. Yeah, I see this being problematic. Yeah. It says this was a management course he took when he worked for Sizzler. Kind of like Hamburger University and McDonald's, Iowa State Republican spokesperson said. He said he got a certificate which falls short of the degree that he boasted about. I've, By so, the way, I've taught leadership courses at McDonald's headquarters, and it's pretty robust. They teach more than just hamburger making. Right? Yeah. You know, that, he, that but Dean Hamburger. Yeah. That Dean Hamburglar, he doesn't mess around. No. He he's, runs a tight ship there. I, he's a shifty dude, though. You can't. I can't. I could never trust her. Trust Professor Hamburglar. Um, okay, here's a question for you, and this is very personal. Uh oh. So if I overshare, grabbed my chest and dropped to the ground, mm-hmm. which one of you would initiate CPR and mouth to mouth? Well, before that, I'd kind of kick you a little bit, see if maybe okay you were still there. So after gently kicking me, mm-hmm. nudging me a little bit. Okay. Yeah. If you want to characterize it that way. Which one of you would initiate CPR and mouth-to-mouth? Can we split those duties up? Well, <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. Which one you, of you would do mouth-to-mouth? If you consult the American Heart Association, mouth-to-mouth is not required anymore for proper CPR. It's, it's not required, but it, it is. <laughs> it, it is. All, all, they, all they point out is compressions to get the heart moving. It's again. not required, but it, it is still additive in oh. that if you have enough people there – when the fire department gets there, mm. they will still do chest compressions, but they will also oxygenate you by bagging you. Right. And so here's why. Uh, out of the UK, there's a study that says mouth-to-mouth embarrassment is hindering heart attack survival mm. because some people are not about to kneel down and start working your mouth. Right. <laughs> because they have embarrassment over giving mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. So it means – Six out of ten Britons would stand by rather than provide first aid if they saw someone having a heart attack. Hmm. That's scary. I'd want to be the one that would kneel next to you, raise my hands to the ceiling and go, no, and then drop a huge fist that, right in the middle you of the do last a cardiac, resort. What they used to call that, like a cardiac thump. So I like a camera shot from above? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be yeah. a good scene. And then you just hit him as hard as you can. Okay. To get to, but it would be a life-saving maneuver that I, I am performing. dead. <laughs> I'm dead if I have a heart attack on the show. Concerns over being sued, lack of confidence in CPR skills are also holding people back. A report by the British Heart Foundation, BHF, mm. 
reveals that currently just 8% of English patients survive cardiac arrest, and that only between 30 and 40% of bystanders even intervene when they see someone collapse. Every minute without CPR or resuscitation using a defibrillator cuts a person's chance by survival by around 10%. Well, how do you ask permission, uh, ask for somebody to give their permit, their consent for you to perform this service for them you if don't. they can't respond? But there are laws usually in place in every state. That, the Good Samaritan a, a laws? The Good Samaritan law, a good bystander law, and you just – so you use that law. And if you, you if you don't do anything crazy like Terry was just suggesting, <laughs> like a – an eight-foot uh, all-star wrestling I'm move. I'm more of a – yeah, off the table with an elbow. Maybe that would be the way to get yeah. your heart restarted. No? No, it's better to okay. just kneel down and ask – call for help and do a sternum rub. Rub my sternum. Don't do an elbow drop. The people's elbow crunch. Yeah. No, so okay. it's important and yet very few of us know what we're doing. Hmm. Again, as not to brag but as a guy that's done CPR on about 10 people. So could you do it on yourself? No. That's the hard part. I could never wake up to hey, do my Matt, own CPR. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Take yeah. care of things yourself. Okay. Don't look for you know others. What? I'm officially now going to start carrying my own defibrillator. <laughs> I'm just carrying it around with me now. Couldn't it just be your taser? Can that be the next update to your Tasers, taser? not defibrillators. Slash... We have a defibrillator downstairs. Pretty sure. Just down in the main hall here at BYU Broadcast. I think we have one by the Coke machine too. Oh, good. See, good. You sure. guys know where it is? Nice. And by the way, while you're there, bring me a Diet Coke. Or get you a drink. <laughs> we'll take care of it. On Except both sides. we don't serve Diet Coke here. Oh. <sighs> wah, wah. All right, we'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Lisa Firestone, replaying an interview we did earlier about uh, say what you want in your relationship, how to improve your communication. Stick with us. Say what you need to say. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, people often say that communication is the key to a relationship. While that may be true, many times it's easier said than done. Sometimes it's just so easy to tell somebody that they need to say what they need to say. But at some point, uh, especially under stress, it gets a lot harder to do it. So how do you say what you want to say in a way that will make it easier for others to hear you? Um, We're going to be speaking now to our guest, Dr. Lisa Firestone. She's the Director of Research and Education at the Glendon Association and Senior Editor at PsychAlive.org. She specializes in couple relationships and is with us today to discuss her article, Four Ways to Say and Get what you want in your relationship. Dr. Lisa Firestone, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. I'm glad to be here. You bet. Honored to have you. I loved the article um, about, uh, you know, how to say what you need to say. It's such a hard thing. Why is communication and really communicating our, our needs such a difficult thing in our most important relationships? Well, I think part of the difficulty is it makes us feel very vulnerable um, to be in a wanting state and asking for what you want, you have to, first of all, feel it, what it is that you really want, and then express it. And I think that's difficult for people. No, totally. Don't you think? And, and that, that's a great way to phrase it, a wanting state. We, we kind of want to act like we, we have no wants. Right, like we don't need anything from anybody else. And often this is a message we get early on in life that we want too much or uh, that it's not okay to want or that you're going to get hurt if you want. 
That's true, huh? And then so then you may learn that I shouldn't have to ask for it. And then I guess what happens is we hope that our partner uh, is going to just naturally love us so much they're going to, I guess, intuit what we want. They're going to figure out what we want. Yeah, they're going to read our minds and meet all our needs perfectly. <laughs> yeah, I don't see that happening. <laughs> it's hard. No, it doesn't really happen that way. And it is really important to feel your wants and to be able to express them. Um, but to to do it in a way that's not, you know, entitled or, or victimized either. Yeah, you don't want to. Yeah, you don't want to sound like a victim or even play the victim. You also don't want to accuse people of not caring because that's, I guess, another way to to shut off them even wanting to hear you. Right, and I think when you accuse people of of not caring, partly you're accusing them of not having read your mind often and figured out what it is you want. When you can ask directly from a vulnerable place, your partner is actually very likely. Um, to want to try to provide that if they can. Right. Is it, um, I guess this is really more of a skill, it sounds like, that that people need to learn. And yet, uh, it, I guess a lot of us think it should just be natural. Yeah, I, I think that maybe it would be natural if we hadn't experienced uh, hurts early on or in, you know, in past relationships as well. Um, but I, I do think it is hard for people to be vulnerable. We live in a society that teaches you to be sort of tough and pseudo-independent and take care of yourself, um, not have any needs particularly. Uh, and yet we you know, very much do have needs and wants, especially in our closest relationships. Is, is this idea of vulnerable – I've always found when I coach couples that – um, there's really a magical moment when somebody will be vulnerable. They kind of open up. They're, I call it more real. They end up maybe crying when they've always wanted to cry or they, or they emote. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've noticed that if, if one person's vulnerable and the other person receives it well, it ends up heightening intimacy. It ends up heightening closeness. Very much so. I think when you're vulnerable, you're much more likely to actually get what you want, even though it feels like a scary state or, you know, maybe have been labeled even being weak or something. But actually, it it does open the other person up, and it's very likely to melt their heart, and it leads to much more closeness and an actual understanding of each other so that then you can provide what the other one wants and needs. Does it um – this, in a way, it seems like this could also be a little bit gender-oriented where I could see for some reasons men might be much less willing to be vulnerable. Right. I think that males in our society are pretty socialized to uh, not be vulnerable. You know, when you're five years old and you cry to your mother for something, you're considered a mama's boy. You know, yeah, you get right. attacked for that. So, you know, the idea is not to act like you have any feelings or any wants, and yet, obviously, men just as much as women have feelings and have wants and needs in relationships. Yeah. Um, the, uh, it's, that word vulnerable, just, it, it does. It's such, a, it, it's such an unnerving idea that I have to go express weakness or, you know, insecurity or fear about something. But that really is, it seems like, the, the, one of the main roles that we play in our most intimate relationships is to be there to to make it safe for people to be vulnerable with us. Right. And I, I think that, you know, it may seem weak, but it's actually the strongest position to be in. Yeah, yeah. When you're vulnerable, you're more likely to get what you want. You're more likely to have people be vulnerable with you, um, you know, and 
that's why I also, uh, you know, suggest to couples they practice something I call unilateral disarmament. Yeah, talk about yeah. that. That's to me. This yeah. is such a fascinating, and it's actually I think it's, it's an essential skill. I think it's a really essential skill because you know when one partner lashes out for whatever reason, you know the tendency is to lash back, you know, because you feel hurt. And then it can really escalate, you know, to where people are, are saying very hurtful things, which they may not even fully mean, um, just trying to win their point or be right, you know, um, instead of be close. You know, they forget what their overall goal is for the relationship. Right. Um, and so the idea is when, you know, when you feel hurt, instead of lashing back to unilaterally disarm and actually reach out and be warm toward your partner, maybe even put a hand on them. And say something like, I care more about feeling close to you than winning this argument. Um, Now, again, most of the time that's going to melt your partner's heart. Also, you're not going to feel bad about all the things you've said or done that maybe you really wish you hadn't. Right. And there won't be this damage done to your relationship on both sides by people saying very hurtful things that are kind of hard to take back afterwards. Yeah, and what it, it seems to do is if one person's reacting your inclination, I guess, is to react and either attack back or run away. But you're saying just kind of center yourself, step towards them, maybe touch them, and mm-hmm. and and make some statement that, look, I'm not here to fight with you. I want to understand where you're coming from. Right, and it takes a lot of ability to sort of calm yourself down and be not reactive to do this. But if you can do this, it actually gives you a lot of power to have impact on not only a relationship partner, but your children, uh, you know, people at work. You know, it, it's an important skill for really staying who you want to be in the world, uh, in your relationship, as a parent, um, as a coworker. You know, who, who is it you want to be and staying in that posture no matter what anybody else does, which is actually a pretty strong position. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I always jokingly say, but it's true that my husband is better at this than I am. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's it's an interesting tactic because um, if you – just the words you call it, practice unilateral disarmament. If all of a sudden we had two people that cared about each other who for one reason or another had their guns drawn on each other, when you put your gun down and kick it away, you're you're vulnerable again. Yeah, you're vulnerable again and again very – often that will let the other person drop their armor, too. You know, when you keep pointing the gun, then people feel threatened, you know, and and they're going to either threaten back or run away. Like you said, they're going to be in kind of fight-or-flight mode and not able to really communicate. You know, when we're in that kind of triggered or emotionally heightened state, you know, we get into that kind of fight-or-flight state, like we're in a dangerous situation. Instead of remembering that actually we're an adult, we're pretty safe, this is our relationship partner, if we drop our weapons and calm our brain down, we can communicate using, you know, more of our ability to use our words, to make eye contact, and all these much more friendly ways of engaging. Right. And I guess it's it's almost illogical, though, right, um, where everyone else would be saying, no, defend yourself. You've got to defend. Don't let him talk to you like that. But what you're saying is I'm not, I'm not going to react here. I'm actually going to choose the healthier choice. If you want to continually be unhealthy, I'm not going to participate in that. Right. And, and you know, you're not giving in. It's not like you're saying, oh, you're right or, right. you know, everything you say is, you know, the truth and I have no part in this. Um, I mean, you know, 
you have no part in this. I'm it's all the I'm all to blame. That isn't what you're saying. You're just saying I care more about being close to you, and you're taking that stance. I'm not going to be somebody I don't want to be. I'm not going to be the yelling, shrieking, whatever, throwing things person that yeah. you maybe trying to provoke me to be. I'm just going to stay being me, and hopefully you're going to be able to drop your side and recognize that maybe it's worth it to stay close to me. Oh, exactly. I think that's powerful. Again, we're speaking um, with Dr. Lisa Firestone, author of the book The Self Under Siege, and um, also the article Four Ways to Say and Get What You Want in Your Relationship. So far, she's taught us to stay vulnerable and to practice unilateral disarmament. We'll take a break, come back, and continue learning uh, two other skills, two other tools that will help us get what we want and be able to say what we need in our relationships Powerful communication skills. Up next, folks, stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. If you've ever just wanted to be able to share something that's in your heart with someone you care about, you just don't know how, you don't dare, um, you know, you probably end up finding some pretty ineffective ways of doing it. Maybe, you know, making accusations, playing the victim, playing the martyr. No, I'll do it. I do everything. Um, But in the end, there might be healthier ways to do it. And we're talking with our guest, Dr. Lisa Firestone who wrote the article, Four Ways to Say and Get What You Want in Your Relationship. And so far, she's taught us a couple of them. One is to be vulnerable. Stay stay in that vulnerable space. Um, and another is to practice unilateral disarmament, where you put your gun down. You're, you basically, in the when it's engaging into an argument or a fight, don't run away, stay put, but just lower the gun, lower the weapon, and just verbally say, I'm not. I want to connect with you. I'm not here to fight you and try to understand where they're coming from. Dr. Firestone, welcome back to the show and thank you for this insight. Oh, you're welcome. Talk to us about um, the victimized language. One of your uh, rules was to don't use victimized language. What do you mean by that? Right. A, a lot of people in relationships um, will play the victim. You know, um, I'm the one who does everything, like you said. Um, I'm the one who always has to give in. Um, You know, if only you would do this, if only you would do that. Um, And often there's partly a feeling of feeling entitled or like uh, you absolutely need this from your partner and they're supposed to meet all of your needs, so you're a victim if they don't. And the reality is no one person can meet all of your needs. Now, that means that you might like classical music and your partner doesn't. So maybe you go to see those kinds of concerts with a friend, um, and that's okay. Or, you know, maybe going to basketball basketball games is not your partner's thing, but then you can share that with somebody else. Hmm. Now, we do need to have some shared activities, obviously, yeah, right. to grow our relationship. So it's not that we should just rule out all of each other's interests. That would be bad. But, you know, it's often this thing like this is the only person and they've got to meet all my needs. And that's a lot of a burden to put on any other person. Right, especially uh, somebody that doesn't know how to meet half of your needs. Mm-hmm. That, that exactly. really is the big expectation issue, huh? Because we would expect that our partner would know how to or would want to or would be willing to learn or would be just like us. 
Right. And yet they're a completely different person who was raised in a completely different family, who may have different ideas about what people really need and how to meet those needs and who's supposed to do what for whom. And, you know, it's really a process where you need to be able to communicate and not in a victimized way of if you only had done this or you should have done that or why can't you just do this. But, you know, to really from a place of being open and saying what you want and being vulnerable and letting them really see you so that there's a feeling of, oh, that's what this person needs. I really would like to try to do that for them. Um, You know, so that's a very different, you know, I mean, we shouldn't be either entitled or victimized. Right. Yeah, right. And there's something, too, it seems like about if if my partner is always playing the victim, then it, I guess, in self-reflection, I notice that I just must be this horrible person. I mean, because I keep right. being framed as the villain if they're the victim. Right. So if you're the victim, your partner's the villain. Yeah. Um, if you, you know, if you feel like they're playing the victim game, you feel like you're the villain. And that just makes people angrier. You know, in a way, when you put that villain label on your partner, they sort of fulfill it. Right, exactly. <laughs> Not a good idea. Yeah, that's the last thing <laughs> you want to do want... is empower that. No, you don't want to empower that or, or put them in that role. And often in that, when we're doing that, we're projecting onto them. We're seeing them as somebody from our childhood who maybe didn't meet our needs or who was indifferent to our needs. And often we're not really even seeing them. So it's not a very fair thing to do to your partner. Right. And then, and then another, your final tool you suggest is that we avoid making the you statement. Uh, what right. do you mean by that? Like, like the, the accusation of like you, you do this. You do this, you do that. You're, when we interpret, well, like we know what the other person feels. You don't care about me anymore. Uh, you don't, you know, do what you used to do. You know, you're always distracted. You know, these sort of global statements that are all about what's wrong with our partner. Very much better to stick with talking about how you feel and telling them how they feel, right? <laughs> something that you're probably not as much of an expert on, um, <laughs> and they probably have some insight about. Um, but it's better to just really stick with, this is how I feel, and this is what I want. I also find that people have a lot easier time saying how they don't want their partner to act. I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to do that. And Stop treating me like that. But it's much harder to say, no, what I want is I want you to treat me like this. Right. Yeah. No, I and talk that about that all the time. actually much more powerful than saying, you know, don't do this and don't do that. It's, this is what I'd like. And again, that makes your partner more likely to feel like doing it. Well, and two, they also now know what to do. Sometimes if we only state what they don't want, then I don't necessarily mm-hmm. know what you do want. Or if you, if you right. tell me how I don't do it right, well, why don't you tell me how it would look like if it was done right? Right. And and when you keep saying, you know, you didn't don't do it right, you make the person feel demoralized and like they can't and they just might give up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not a good way to inspire your partner to want to meet your needs. But if you say, you know, I, I want more of your attention. Could we maybe, you know, go out tonight and not take our devices, you know, or could we, you know, spend some time having fun this weekend and do something where we both enjoy so we're laughing together? I mean, not That's... too many partners are going to say no to that. No. Yeah, I don't want to laugh together. Yeah, no one's going to say that. No. I, yeah. You don't have dinner with you? Yeah, that's right. It's really interesting. It, and it's it's not even just – you're not even just saying be positive. You're just saying talk talk about what you want from your frame of reference, not theirs. Don't make the accusation about them and then state what you want it to look like basically. Right. And so you give them a chance of, of meeting that. If it's really important to you uh, – to get 
to give presents, you know. Often I find couples will do funny things, like they'll show love the way that they want to be loved to their partner, which might have nothing to do with how their partner feels loved. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I have, I have a colleague that was a family therapist for many years, and he said it took 30 years for him and his wife to figure out this one thing. And she would give him a card on every occasion, um, you know, whether it was birthdays, Christmas, you know, Easter, you know, every holiday. And he hated getting these cards. He thought they were so annoying. <laughs> and so he spared her the annoyance by never buying her any of these cards. <laughs> Guess who wanted the cards? Exactly. It took them 30 years to figure out. And he was happy to buy the cards yeah. because she wanted them. Yeah, if that's what you want. But, and she was happy to stop buying them because he didn't want them once they figured it out. But you have to figure out how your partner experiences love. I mean, this comes up with Valentine's Day. People plan a Valentine's Day that is their, what they think would be the over-the-top for them. But it might not be at all what their partner wants. Exactly. You're sending your, you know, you're sending your shy, introverted partner flowers in the middle of their office during the day might be humiliating to them, yep. not thrilling. Whereas for you, it might be thrilling. You know, it's it's really important to think about if you're trying to be loving toward your partner. What is it that they experience as love? Yeah. No, that's powerful. Well, and again, it seems like a no-brainer, but part of it is just, I guess, we got to get in. We got to get into the relationship and. And actually, I guess, start thinking about it more. That's why I really love uh, the work that you did here. Again, Dr. Lisa Firestone, thank you so much for being with us today on the show. And people, you can find out more about uh, Lisa's work and 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 um, all of her uh, resources if you go to the website psychalive.org, psychalive.org. Um, great uh, information more and more information that uh, will just guide you through your relationships. Good stuff, folks. We are going to take a break. And uh, on the other side of the break, visit our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us. Uh, We're almost to the end zone, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. The sad, somber tunes that uh, are so fitting as we now go to Las Vegas to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. What's up? No joke, Careless Whisper played last <laughs> night by the St. Mary's Band. Are During you serious? During was, the game. It was awesome. I looked right at Jerem and we both started <laughs> laughing. When St. Mary's was up by like 30 points in the second half and thought, this is too perfect. They the must listen to the I show. Do they listen to your show and know oh, that yeah, I'll, you play I'll, sax? I'll, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, they're play-by-play. Alex Jensen made multiple references to us last night on the radio call. Holy cow. He can't not look at us. He can't look at us and not say something. <laughs> so we're always, we're always looking at him to see if he'll mention us. Yeah, we had another of our friends. His name is Zach Bayrudy. He's the uh, play-by-play voice of the Pacific Tigers. He came over during the second half and was like, hey, I just wanted to come over and make sure you guys are okay. We're oh, like, boy. we're having a great time. He's like, no, are you, are you guys okay? Are you really okay? I was just kind of bored, but yeah. Never better. Hey, um, okay, so you you were predicting it in a way. You never overtly said it, but the matchup is a tough matchup. Horrible. So is that what happened? They just yeah, we, bored yeah. him to death? Yes, we exactly. We told you yesterday yeah. this was a bad situation for BYU, and it played out even worse than we thought. I, 
in my worst-case scenarios, I didn't see it playing out like that. That was embarrassing. It was the lowest output of the season offensively. It was the worst loss in the Dave Rosera, 12 seasons. Oh, you oh. didn't see all those things happening, Jerem? That was <laughs> terrible. And so this needs to be a, a game that BYU looks back on in the future and says, okay, we learned from that and we got better because of it. Yeah, Otherwise, it's a motivational it's a tipping late. point. Motivational tipping point. But what is it? I mean, because you, you should be able to play a half-court game, right? And yes. score. Yes, but... When you are a young team, generally, when you can't score points, you start to get sped up. And Dave Rose mentioned that this team gets energy and confidence when they score points. Yeah. It's hard to score against St. Mary's. I mean, they're one of the top two scoring defenses in the entire country. So when you base your confidence and your mojo on scoring the basketball, yeah. Yeah, you're in trouble. you have to learn how to find – that motivation in other places. St. Mary's gets their motivation by being a good defensive team, right? Right, right. BYU does so offensively, so it just was bad, bad dynamic. As Ugh. a program, BYU invests offensively, right? Yeah, Dave right. Rose comes from Five Slam Jamma. They were an offensive league. That's great right. Team, right? So it, when BYU went to the Sweet 16, they were a really, really good defensive team, and they had the, nat- the best scorer in the country. That mm. combination was really really good so i think philosophically you need to invest more in the defensive end at some point he's been really successful without that that per se but in the wcc tournament he's now own five versus gonzaga own four and now own one versus st mary's when they need to beat the top two they haven't been able to do it in this tournament yeah <sighs> so so you guys just sitting there in an empty stadium now what are you doing well we have been every morning you know it's kind of lonely. The score is still up from last night. Oh, is it really? Yeah, Gale's 81, Cougars 50. So that's great. To, yeah, that just to have that kind of ingrained in your... It's going to be in the yeah. background on uh, TV. So Oh, is it really? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. You know. Right now we're like, can we get that, can we get that taken down? <laughs> can somebody turn that machine off? Hey. Do you, do you guys... Um, and then the ladies, the lady Cougs lost as well. Yeah, by 10. They they played a they played a poor game. Hmm. They had one good quarter. Yeah, it, it was a tough uh, St. Mary's again. You know. So let me ask you this, um, Moraga. Moraga is that the next? What's That's that? Where St. Mary's is? Oh, is that? Oh, is it? Sorry, not to didn't know that. Um, uh, so they say the NIT is much like kissing one's sister. Uh, having never, I wouldn't know done that. I'm wondering what you guys think. The NIT does stinketh, um, mm-hmm. unless you had a losing record last year, and you're like, oh, sweet, back in the postseason, awesome. The first year of the Dave Rose era, everyone felt great about the NIT. Hey, got back into the postseason, great. It it will be a disappointment to be in the NIT. Both the men and the women are expected to make the NIT. This yeah. was a loss of historic proportions for all of the wrong reasons, the mm. NIT being just one of them, okay? Yeah. So in your, no joy in, Mudville. in your show, you will uh, be dissecting this loss. Yes. <sighs> Spencer sounds like he's had the breath taken out of him. Well, it's a, it's a long trip, too, and it's a disappointing finish. Also, well, one of us has to go back to work in Provo tomorrow while the other goes to spring training baseball in Arizona. Oh, boy. I'm Listen, sorry. The fact that both teams lost yesterday cost us some per diem. 
That's the big news. And we've lost free money, <laughs> we lost, Matt. We lost sorry, money guys. on Brigham that would have paid for meals today. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you had to go through that. Yeah. The weather's nice. <sighs> you know, we're mainly in a bad mood because we have to go home. No, yeah, you got to go home. You weren't even allowed. You didn't have time to go see the town. You were busy, and now, yeah, you go home we, losers. It was a business trip, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't steal the deal. You didn't get the, yeah, you didn't get the bid. Yeah, I'm sorry. You didn't get the bid, yeah. Well, you know, but j- I, look at it this way. It's all you, good. We're you, cool. you do have the NIT, which yeah. gives hey. you a couple more days of stuff to talk about. That's like, hey, can I have some... Can I have a bagel? Nope. Here's a burnt piece of toast. Oh, yeah. Well, it's still food, right? I mean, it's still food. Uh, it, sure, it's a carcinogen, but yeah. I get you it. Just scrape off the, uh, just the scrape. edges there, and you'll be all right. Oh, my gosh. Uh, anything? Is there going to be anything like uh, remotely positive on the show? I mean, I, mean, I don't want to doom your show, but is there anything good that's going to come on the show? Absolutely. There oh, oh yeah, yeah. We, we've, got a, we've got a lot of good stuff prepared. Okay. You just listen, don't. I listen, get it. We're not, we're not like super bummed. No, I mean, it's just, it is what it is. It just is what it is. Well, it's yeah. like a baby. You know, when a baby's born, it is what it is. Sometimes they're ugly. That's true. And it's just, it's just an ugly baby. Wow. That ha- no. Charles Barkley said, if there are so many, if all babies are pretty, why are there so many ugly people in the world? That's a great point. Dropping truth bombs, Matt Townsend. That's right. That's right. Well, we'll let you guys go do your show, and where, where you mentioned the ugly baby, and we're gonna we're gonna sing you out with little Bobby Vinton. Uh, the title's oh, yeah. Mr. Lonely. Oh yeah, now with the Mandalay Bay. That's right, guys. Have I a great show. Song. Knock them dead, Thanks, Mandalay Bay it up. <sighs> Two very very lonely broadcasters, alone in a stadium, Orleans Stadium. They know that we want them back, right? They're not just going to stay there. No, they're just they're coming back. Sulk. Jerem's going to spring baseball, I think in Arizona probably. I don't know. And uh, Spencer's got to come back and work. They don't have to be lonely. But every one in Cougarville is really down, sad. <sighs> well, let's do what we can to pull you out of that. Lonely. Okay, let's not do that. Um, let's look at it this way. It could be worse, right? You, you, it could be worse than being a Cougar fan in basketball right now. You could also be a Houston area teenager who made that crazy mistake of, you know, mistaking the gas pedal for the brake pedal. Actually, mistaking the brake pedal for the gas pedal. Firefighters say it appears that a teenager mistakenly accelerated instead of stepping on the brake while on the roof of a garage, sending his car plummeting seven stories down, flipping and landing upside down on the top of a shopping center and embedding itself into the roof. When firefighters rushed to the scene, they found the teen inside, Westheimer Plumbing and Hardware Store, Seemingly in shock, but otherwise only minor injuries occurred. Cops say the teen confirmed to them that he stepped on the gas by mistake. The car was eventually dislodged with the help of a crane. He will be all right. So your life, Cougar fans, could be worse. You could be that kid who has to go home and explain to his mom and dad what happened to their car. Matt. Yeah. Yeah. Terry just... I just got a note from Terry. Okay, what? 
Um, that apparently wasn't the only thing that went wrong at the garage. What? Went the parking wrong? lot. Uh, and it involves one of our reporters. Oh, boy. Which one? Which one? Schick. Shemway. Schick's on the scene? He wants to report something. What does he want to report? Unfortunately, he's not able to report on anything at the moment. Was Schick? There may have been an incident. We don't have all of the details right now. Schick was shot. Um, and unfortunately, we have two minutes before we toss it over to Sports Nation. But <sighs> we'll get more details. We can fill everybody in tomorrow what happened to Schick. Something may have happened to Schick in that accident. I think he was there. You know, he's always punctual. Yeah. Overly punctual, some would say. So he was probably a day late. So I don't know if he was short. covering a different story or if he has, you know, some sort of, mm. you know, yeah. okay. mental capacity that he can Great. foresee these events. But he's – Tomorrow. We'll figure out what happened. Tomorrow, 9 a.m. Eastern, we will be talking about Shik Shumway. I hope he's okay. I hope he's okay too. That's tragic. That's scary. Shik was um, shucked. Don't say was. Okay. We, Schick, don't, we don't know what happened. Shik is shucked. I don't know. We'll find Shucks. out tomorrow. I, I hope I hope he's okay. As we always like to, we end the show with a hero story. Our hero today, Johnny Jennings, is an 86-year-old, but he first visited the Georgia Baptist Children's Home when he was 18, and the visit changed his life forever. A child ran up to Jennings begging to be adopted, and it was the moment Jennings realized his life's mission. When he went to leave, these three little boys grabbed me by the knees and said, Will you be my daddy, Jennings told today. He said, uh, and I said, I'll do what I can. That took my heart right there. From that day forward, Jennings did everything he could to help, and turned out to be, which turned out to be quite a lot. Since he wasn't ready to adopt a child on his own, he decided to contribute financially. Since he wasn't uh, independently wealthy, he did so by collecting paper and aluminum products and cashing them in for money. That may not sound like that much, but Jennings, to date, has donated more than $400,000 over the past 30 years. And over those 30 years, Jennings has become the cornerstone of the children's home community. Johnny Jennings is one of the most gracious individuals I have ever met, Georgia Baptist Children's Home President Dr. Kenneth Thompson said today. I have always admired his quiet, humble spirit, his commitment to helping others, and most of all, his love for the children in our care. So Johnny Jennings, at 86 years old, you are the hero of the day on The Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Johnny, for giving us your great example, for answering the plea And going above and beyond the call of duty, true heroes, that's what we do, folks. That's what you are. That's who you are. That is the show as well, my friends. We'll be back tomorrow to give you more ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Until tomorrow, let's make it a great one, and let's be there for those in need. We'll talk again tomorrow.